sure it's uh you get what you get and you don't get upset that's that, the right cadence it's not you, you get what you get and then like a blank and then don't get upset she was she was persian all right so she there might have been some translation issues i forget who i made that i made that to taunt somebody i forget who we're talking about a video of my daughter where I was clarifying that in her class, the thing they would say is you get what you get and don't be upset. I think get what you get and you don't get upset. That's the one you've heard, right? Yeah. You need all those syllables. You get what you get and you don't get upset. You need all of them. Yeah. And what was the other one? The alternate that somebody had been telling me? Don't don't have a fit or something. Get what you get and don't have a fit. Do you think that, is that, that one of those pronunciation that, things? That works with the way you pronounce things. You get what you get. You don't, get, don't have a fit. <laughs> fit and get rhyme. You think that's what I sound like? Yeah. You, you refuse to pronounce your own name for people? I refuse. I've said it a million times. I've said it a million times. Also, it's, isn't it Federico? It's not Dan. I couldn't find a copy of, uh, I'll send you the Dan clip if you want. I, I do looked have for it. I Googled for it and I couldn't find it, but I did find the, uh, the Federico one. Yeah, I mean, well, that's just, that's different. Yeah, no, I, I have a dead ear for that stuff. I pronounce stuff weird, but God, the way that guy talks, man, isn't that beautiful? Yep. That's why, like I said, that's why you feel like you can understand Italian when you watch The Godfather. You're like, I understand every word of this. This has nothing to do with the subtitles that I'm subconsciously reading and the fact that I've seen the movie a thousand times. That's not it. It's just because it's such a beautiful language. It speaks to me. It's like human machine code. It goes right to the core. Seracusa. <laughs> Yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, <laughs> Wednesday. <laughs> did you, how much, how much um, Italian speaking did you have when you were coming up? In, like around you? I mean, you know, from family members or people in the neighborhood. How often did you just hear people speaking Italian like that was a normal thing? Zero. None of the time. Because they didn't speak it or they just, was there like a, I'm, I'm an American reason? My great grandparents who were born in Italy, uh, did not want their children, my grandparents, to wanted them to be American, didn't want them speaking Italian. So didn't teach their children, my grandparents, Italian. And so my grandparents knew enough Italian to say those weird phrases they say in the New York metro area that aren't, like if you watch The Sopranos and you hear the weird sort of uh, there's probably a word for it, but like the Americanized Italian, where they take an Italian word and just change it so much that it is just nonsense American gibberish that has no right. more connection with the with the the real world. My grandparents had a little bit of that, and you know, a couple of catchphrases here and there, but that's it. And so the Italian ended when my uh, bo- both sets of all, all my great grandparents are fairly stubborn in teaching their children. Uh, to be American and so not teaching them to speak Italian. Even that that, used, to be a, that Italian used to be a pretty common thing, I'm given to believe. Like, you know, we, we're in America now. This is how we do it. Well, yeah. Like, and I think it's changed over where I think now uh, people do speak their native language with their children and want their children not to lose the language. But back in my great-grandparents' generation, it was totally like, no, you, you need to be American. You need to have unaccented American English. I mean, they all have New York accents, but, you know... <laughs> Well, ironically enough, I mean, for being in this increasingly undiverse city, we're in a, a fairly diverse area to where there are many versions of that, not just like that I can like, you know, that, that I've heard of, but like amongst my daughter's friends, there are numerous different versions of that, starting all the way from, you know, um, a couple a couple of the parents of a friend of hers from kindergarten, they didn't really speak English at all. 
uh, I mean, they, it was it was very difficult to to converse unless you were both really trying. They really they spoke Spanish, and now they've they've learned a lot of English. But there's the one side of the spectrum where there's a lot of families around here that speak almost exclusively Spanish. I'll tell you, a big one was a lot of homogeny. Just I, not only it's on racist, but just from the outside, um, people in the Russian community. It's there's a lot of people will just talk to each other in Russian almost exclusively. Um, you get some of that with Chinese people um, in Mandarin and Cantonese, but what you see, what we seem to get a lot of, is when I'll hear, like, when we walk into school and hear kids talking to their parents or often grandparents. A lot of the, a lot of the kids are, are largely taken care of by grandparents in our neighborhood. It's super interesting, you know, because both parents work, and uh, that's like a pretty traditional thing in a lot of these families. But you'll hear them, and the, and there's like to, you hear total like code switching going on. We'll hear all the things you're describing. You'll hear like most of a paragraph in um, Cantonese with a little, then occasionally like dropping in, you'll hear English words like, you know, like Luffax kind of stuff. And um, being French, of course. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, you'll also, you'll just hear them going back and forth all over the place. The, the other funny part though is there are a lot of parents who don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese, but they damn sure want their kids to learn it to wear the very hottest ticket you know, my kid goes to aftercare where you can take classes. She takes three classes. She takes yoga. She takes painting. She takes science, uh, extra science stuff. But like the, the far and away, the hottest ticket is Mandarin. It fills up very, very fast. Mandarin is super hot. Partly, I think, because of the neighborhood and the people's background, but also because I think it's the, new, it's the new French. Like it's the new Spanish. It's the new international language to learn. Yeah, I was, that stuff never seems to play out quite the way people expect it to. You need to learn this because in the future, everyone will be speaking this and... I don't know if that has ever really worked out for anybody. If they're if maybe they're just guessing wrong or whatever. But I think it was French. French was the the language of business until I think probably maybe I just know this from movies, but at least until the sixties or seventies. By the early eighties, remember Japan? Remember the Japanese? All those the idea that Japan was going to take over the world and that we should be learning Japanese so we can do business with Japan. Do you remember how prevalent that feeling was? Like around the time of all those terrible eighties and nineties movies. Yeah, they can make a quality car. The logical conclusion is they will soon rule the world. It can't be because we Americans make crap cars. No, they are a super powerful race of beings in that country, and soon they will own the world. Uh, not so much. Yeah. Well, then, I mean, there was, but it was a funny combination of the, I mean, I'm trying to think of like some of those movies from the time. There was that Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes one. Was that one? Remember that one? But it was like incredible. It was fairly racist. Or even like in uh, Die Hard. Uh, oh, yeah. What was that? Uh, Rising Sun. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rising was Sun. Was it motorcycles in that, I think? I don't remember. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking of it. But like Die Hard. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Die Hard's a Japanese company, right? Is it the Nakam? Yep, that was, that was the, the Go Go 80s, yeah. But like, there was the fact that Japanese companies, first of all, they, were, they had just they had handed us our ass in automotives for ten, fifteen years to where and electronics and oh, obviously yes, of course they I'm wiped sorry. out the American electronics industry. Yeah, they, they made it smaller, they made it better, they made it cheaper, they made it Sony, and then yeah, then the autom- automotive stuff I think was a real black eye though because it wasn't like America had this amazing cottage industry of transistor radios, but like well, being, I mean, we did all the, all the television sets and all the radios, and the, I think Zenith was like the last American oh, right. uh, television maker, and like all that stuff kind of went away, but it, like it it didn't it didn't stand up to scrutiny because I, I think the the Chinese one makes more sense because there's so many chinese people like mm-hmm. just that that is a, a at least you have something in your camp say look i don't know you know language language there's just tons of chinese people if an alien wants to look at the world they would say well it's mostly chinese people and then some other people and so that makes more sense than this tiny little island 
that granted has densely populated cities, but this tiny little island <laughs> that, uh, yeah, they're doing really well in these certain businesses for this period of time. Uh, but is it going to be deadly important to teach your children who are in elementary school in the eighties to speak Japanese? Because when they become working adults, they'll need to speak Japanese for their business with their business papers. I have, I for one welcome our Sino business overlords. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Mandarin, I mean like, yeah, the, the, not that learning a language is a bad idea, but to do it because you think you'll be preparing your children for something they'll, like, they'll need this in their adults. There's definitely a vibe lives. to that now. Yeah. And like, it just seems like you're probably going to guess wrong. So I hope, I hope you are understanding the other benefits of learning a foreign language. It has nothing to do with whether it's going to be important for their business. It has everything to do with, you know, just uh, molding the, their little minds and opening themselves up to new horizons and different ways of speaking and all, you know, all, all the benefits of learning another language. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I mean, you know, like Roderick and I have talked a lot about the, that feeling of like, oh, you know, I wonder if people who weren't um, old enough, I think a lot of people today were like around during the Cold War, obviously. You know, people even 15 years younger than me were around. But being um, 16, 17, you know, when Ronald Reagan was president and like it was it was actually really genuinely scary. And like that feels like a million years ago and seems very unreal. One we don't talk about a lot, though, is the Japanese thing where Japanese companies. So I remember back in the 70s. My uncle was very iconoclastic in a lot of ways. He was very, he owned, he only ever bought German and Japanese cars. And he was, he was always ahead of the curve on this stuff. He, he, there was so much stuff where I like, was like, wow, my uncle was like 10 years ahead. And like, but it was really considered, I don't know if you remember this. Do you must remember this living where you were living? There was a time when having a Japanese car was really put people off their beer, having a German car. I mean, at a time when, when your grandfather, when one's grandfather, might have fought the people who made that car. There was that. Plus, there was the whole, like, you've got to support America. You know, and then the thing was, though, by the late 70s, early 80s, it was it was becoming incontrovertible. These were more economical. They were safer. They were easier on gas. They required less maintenance. I mean, do you remember, like, how stark that was? Yeah, well, so where I'm from, it's weird, because, yeah, like, my, you know, both of my grandparents were in World War II, one much more briefly than the other. Um, and... I think to like, I remember hearing from my mother's father to the day he died, he had in his mind the notion that uh, products made in Japan were junk because they were before the war or, you know, even even shortly after, before they got their feet under them manufacturing wise. Before, before made, the 60s, it was still pretty dicey. Yeah, it was just, you know, low quality things. And so he would use that as kind of a slur about any kind of product that was, you know, poorly made or it was like acne. It was shorthand. We say made in Japan. It was like, it was shorthand for shoddy. Right. Um, but the car thing where I was growing up on long Island, the car thing turned over, I think even before I was born and that everybody on long Island, uh, maybe it's because we're, you know, closer to the city and more urban and, or whatever, but like, Everybody had uh, was totally willing to have Japanese cars, and the, the stigma was much less than it was. I think. Uh, like when I, I was so surprised when I, you know, first went out to the Midwest and saw, like, so this is where they're selling all the American cars because I, I came from a place from basically my entire life that, like, by the time I was old enough to know a make and a model of a car, like four or five years old the American cars I saw on the road and in my family were all these old junkers. No mm -hmm. one was buying them new anymore. And really? then by the time That's I was, so interesting. By the time I was a teenager, 
it was all imports, just everything, you know. Wow. No, no American cars. And then I went to the Midwest when, you know, when I visited my wife's uh, family for the first time. And I could not believe. I'm like, I was looking around the roads and it was like I'd, I had gone to a totally different country. Like, what are all these pickup trucks? And who is buying American sedans? It's a million, like, <laughs> Ford Explorers. I mean, I know, like, I knew the sales numbers. I read car magazines, but it just, it was such a huge, I mean, they were, they were buying SUVs by that uh, point in Long Island as well, but. What 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 do we what do we talk about here? The nineties, early nineties. Yeah, and so yeah, so where I grew up, there amongst my friends and my family and anyone else, there wasn't the you have to buy American because it's good for your country and so on and so forth. Everybody just bought imports, whether it was German or Japanese or whatever. That's what everybody got. Uh, and then and then uh, yeah, in the nineties and the the mid nineties, going to the Midwest and seeing just huge swaths of american cars i just didn't you know i'm like well these people are they're still buying them. they're still buying american cars these people are keeping ford and gm and we would Chrysler never we business. would never my family this might might i don't know i uh, you know my grandfather i don't know if he i don't know if he, i don't think he owned it i've said before you know i think he worked at a nash an amc dealership in the early 40s i don't think he owned it no there's no way he owned it but anyway uh in my family my uncle was uh, the outlier. There is no way you would own a non-American car. And it wasn't for the typical, like, strictly jingoism reasons. It was one of those things where, like, there was just this whole constellation of reasons. Like, it's the same reason where, like, today you would go, like, why are you buying fresh vegetables? Like, why wouldn't you just get canned or frozen? And you're like, oh, my God, you know, pack a lunch and sit down. There's, like, 50 reasons why I would rather have fresh vegetables. I would even rather have fresh regional vegetables. Like, today, you don't even have to, like, defend that, right? Whereas, when I was a kid, there was two kinds of lettuce, full stop. Like, back then, it was just, it was not even, there's this other part of it I'm trying, I'm avoiding a little bit, but, you know, we're in a time now where, (laughs) uh, talking about the combatants in World War II (laughs) is becoming a much more acceptable thing to talk about to where we compare everybody to dictators and stuff like that. But I don't know if it was like this for you, but there was a lot of like just understood hushed tones, like Soto Voce stuff about European and Japanese things where we didn't even really need to talk about why that was. I'm just guessing probably in other parts of of the New York metro area, there's a lot of people who just, even if they could afford it, or especially could they afford it, would never buy a BMW, and you should not even have to ask why. Yeah, no, we had, I had friends, you know, my friends' parents, in some cases, would not buy a German car, because they were Jewish, and they yeah. were just, you know, their parents were, were never going to buy a German car. Those logos were on the killing machines that they saw when they were there. Right, and but that was only, I would say, like, 2 or 3%. Of them, and it was always the parents. The children didn't have this hang up. They're like, mom, okay, dad, interesting, whatever. yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and they're and they just bought the Japanese uh, Mercedes, which was Lexus. So, ah, God, when did Lexus start? Was that L- LS four hundred. It was like the the best day for people who refused to buy a German car, uh, but wanted desperately wanted a Mercedes. You Lexus can get Japanese Mercedes. Is that contemporaneous LS, with LS, the Infinity, or is that Lexus? Yeah, earlier? it was. It was the same time. The LS four hundred was their was their flagship sedan, and it was it undercut Mercedes and BMW by a tremendous amount of money, like ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and it was incredibly high quality car uh, for a very low price. And uh, that's all the Japanese makers said. Hey, we can make more money by having luxury brands. So um, Toyota did Lexus, Nissan did Infinity, um, Honda did Acura. Mazda was going to do a Mahdi, but chickened out at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I was, and, and you know, most of those brands are still around today and still trying to find a way to sell you a more expensive version of a Toyota, Nissan, or a Honda car, and so it's worked out for them. So Lexus, Lexus came out at around thirty-five thousand base price. It sounds like they're saying here. Yeah, the the original LS four hundred, and then to go look at what the contemporary Mercedes S class was, it was way more expensive, and so it, it was. You know, all the car magazines loved it. Like, wow, this is a very high quality, luxurious car. Uh, that's well-built, that's reliable, because remember, Japanese had the the, repu- the well-earned reputation for reliability, whereas the German ones had a little bit less so, uh, you know, because they, they were leaning more on their uh, heritage and uh, performance and all these other things, whereas the Japanese are like, it'll run forever. So this is basically like the world's fanciest Toyota, but don't call it a Toyota, it's a Lexus. Okay. Hmm. We had other topics. A lot topics. of Lexuses. We had other topics for tonight, but I think we maybe should call an audible. That's a special sports term. Yeah, no, that's that's why I left. I intentionally left it blank tonight because I figured we're just you know. Yeah, I, I, I envy the shows with less structure. We're okay, be one yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. Um, so just one last thought on the Japanese thing because I don't know. I, uh, it was I, what I'm remembering of the well. First of all, like okay, so so just to compare here, like like in, in Ohio, at least where I live, Cincinnati's a very conservative town. Like when you go into almost every other part of Ohio, like where even where like Marco's from, it's uh, he's from Ohio, right? Yeah, it's much, yeah. it's much, much more like liberal, not liberal per se, but no, it always been very like solidly democratic union state, like serious union state. You had Akron making the tires, you know. It's you know it was a very union state. Cincinnati, ridiculously conservative, like super, like creepily conservative. So you would see them around, but you'd be much more likely to see a um, a Ford. Now I'm just thinking of like by the time, like it seems like by around the time I moved to San Francisco in the 90s, it seems like the only time, mostly the only time you saw people driving American cars, it was either a rental or a cop car. It was just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like by the mid to late 90s, like you would be a sucker to buy an American. I mean, am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of the, the cars my parents owned. So when I was born, they had a red Oldsmobile. I think it was a two door that was obviously predates the birth of any children. I think it was my dad's car, right? And I think that was the last American car to ever appear in a driveway. Then we had a, a Volkswagen Rabbit, a Volvo uh, station wagon, um, Mazda minivan, uh, Datsun 280Z for my mom's midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, well, we did have a, a Pontiac Grand Am as the beater car that my sister got when she first got her license. Um, what was it? Uh, Pontiac Grand Am. Okay. Huge American car. Oh, that's like kind of a retiree car, right? Like with a hood. The hood is the size of any of my current cars. You can, you can have a picnic. You put a picnic blanket on the hood. And, you know, I was like, yeah. And it was just, you know, an old used car. They got from, like, did we have any other American? No, I think that was it. And I, I don't think my parents have owned an American car since. So basically that, that Oldsmobile was the only, like, a new american car that we ever had and that that was gone by the time i was you know in, into elementary school that's amazing so what about did your family ever own a non-american car or was it just a series of american cars for as long as you lived with your parents um so first of all funny story i mean like you know you know how it is you get these allegiances like whether that's for a certain kind of uh diapers or ketchup or mayonnaise or, or whatever it is there's this very kind of well-documented thing where like whatever your parents used is very likely to be something that you will use, especially with certain kinds of products. And like I say, my, my grandfather worked at a Nash and AMC place, I think in the 40s probably. He died in 46. So my 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 uh, paternal grandfather, he 
And so they had, what did they have? So let me, here's the funny thing. So there's my, there's my, um, my paternal grandparents had two sons, my uncle and my dad. And first of all, we all had matching like vanity, but non vanity license plates. It was really cute. Like we all had basically a ser- the same series of like numbers and letters, like separated by one, like one, 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 CA, two, 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 CA, three, 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 CA. It was really cute. Um, so like in my case, my, my grandparents almost always had, even after my grandfather died and my grandmother remarried in the fifties, they always had an AMC. The last car I remember ever being in with my grandmother who should not have been driving in 1982 was a Matador, <laughs> an AMC Matador. And uh, that was probably the coolest AMC you could get, I'm guessing. Because, <laughs> you know, it had those... Do you remember, like, the, the latches, the door... You open the doors on an, a, an old AMC. They had those weird, like, latches. It wasn't a handle, exactly. It was more like something from a, a jet. I don't think I've ever been seen an AMC car, let alone been in one, let alone opened a door. On one. Gremlins and Pacers. I mean, I know what a Gremlin looks like. What do you mean you've never iconic, seen them? kind of car. I've they never were all seen over the roads until, like, the, the mid-'80s. Not on Long Island. They You're kidding me. No, no. Oh, my God. I had friends in college who were still driving Pacers No, and Gremlins. Just, just never seen them. Like, like I said, like when, when I was a baby, the car that we had, like, well, you know, when I was young, my, my, my younger brother's car seat was in the middle of Volkswagen Rabbit. Like, VWs at that point were the small car that you would get. I mean, a VW Rabbit looks like, you know, an AMC Pacer, but... Uh, doesn't okay. break down as yeah. much. Rabbits were great. So anyway, long story short. So uh, my grandmother, to her death in the late 80s, had uh, an AMC Matador. Um, my family had a, an awful, like, vomit green uh, Pontiac Catalina two-door. Totally inconvenient. Like, a, a, you know, remember back when two-door cars, like, the, where the doors were difficult to open? I don't know if you're young, you're old enough to remember this, but it used to be when you had a two-door like they're, a, they're big and heavy? Yeah, quote-unquote coupe. Um, but, you know, it's kind of sporty, kind of not, but it's like a big car. But these doors on American cars in the 70s, were inc- even if you didn't have electric windows, were incredibly heavy. So that's what we had, and it was a piece of crap. But, you know, my family can attach emotional value to almost anything. It was something that was a big deal because it was my parents' first like new car they bought together. Pontiac continued to have a very strong emotional relationship for my mom for years. Um. And then my, my uncle was the weirdo. He mostly drove a powder blue VW Beetle. He was a vice president at P&G, at Procter & Gamble. And he drove a powder blue um, uh, bug. And he, he also fixed up Jags. He was really into motorcycles. He was into fix, taking old Jags and fixing them up. And he, he rode a 10-speed, like in the early 70s. <laughs> he was totally ahead of the curve. He's in his 80s now, and he still rides a bike. But, um, yeah, that's what we had. We, it, was, it was all American cars. And I'm trying to think, like, dude, I don't even think I saw a Volvo until I moved to Florida. <laughs> I just My- I had a friend who had a Gumby Green, a friend in college who had a Gumby Green, 1970, maybe two, three, four volvo station wagon that was just glorious it was so gorgeous you know what i mean like the color of the, the character you know gumby yep it was gorgeous so that's what we had that's what we had my grandfather my father's father who was in the navy for his entire career and was in world war ii uh, and stayed in after the war um he had uh the only car i can remember him owning uh, the earliest car I can remember him owning, so I don't know if he had it from the day I was born, but certainly from the day I was old enough to recognize cars, was an orange VW Beetle. So he, he he's in World War II, he stays in the Navy, he comes back to America, he gets a Volkswagen Beetle. You're orange. kidding. Like uh, like traffic cone. Like an orange. early one? Like a 60s VW? 
might have been a 70s one but I mean, still you know, that's that's pretty wild and, and yeah and eventually i think he graduated to like a toyota camry eventually when he got to to that age but uh but yeah i remember is that because that was iconic it was orange and it was a beetle so you, you know when you're a kid you recognize beetles um yeah so it's a different punch buggy different punch world. buggy <laughs> yeah different world like he didn't come back from the war and be like i'll never buy a japanese or a german car no and then my my other grandfather uh did have a bunch of uh american giant american cars with huge hoods but eventually even in his old age he's like you know what i would like to own a mercedes he bought like a 78 mercedes uh when he was uh very old when he was in his uh i think probably mid to late 70s uh just to ha- just say that he had a mercedes wow excited about it i remember him telling the one story i remember him telling about that is he worked on cars his whole life was a thing that he did uh and he was telling me about the difference between a mercedes and the american cars and he says he's changed the fuel filter on an american car and it's like this this you know box or whatever and inside it is this little coffee filter type of you know thing about the size of like a, a silver dollar right so that's the american uh, fuel filter and he said mm-hmm. in the mercedes it was a, a box the size of a lunchbox filled with layer after layer of huge sheets of filtering material for the for the fuel filter instead of this just you know little tiny coffee filter disc it's a different different attitude towards the uh the reliability and the uh quality of the machinery hmm in what way i mean like so you know i um this is a huge topic i've been avoiding this one because it's so big but uh you know i uh i'm one of those guys that skips forward a lot when you guys talk about cars um on your other show not 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 you know i just i just I just don't need to hear about BMWs, <laughs> but I'm super interested in your background with this stuff. So, like, give me a little, drop a little science on me here. Like, what when somebody's thinking about buying? I don't mean to jump too far ahead here, but like, you know, when you think about like the quality of a Japanese car, is it is it is a quality and durability for Japanese cars historically versus luxury for German cars? Like, what's the big what's the big breakdown? I mean, I, I got, I'm sorry, that's kind of a silly question because obviously the Japanese cars are usually the economy cars. But like today, why do people want a fancy German car? Well, things have changed so much uh, since we were kids. But a lot, of, a lot of these things have like, they're like, uh, they have some inertia to them. So in the same way that people kept buying American cars, even as they got crappier and crappier, uh, a lot of the attitudes towards cars today is are, are, are based on inertia. I mean, like the Japanese thing was, that they figured out or were forced to uh, act in this way that they could use basically the scientific method to figure out how to make cars better. Like if we figure out where things go wrong on the assembly line and then change something to see if we can make that not go wrong and like just keep repeating that process, like measure, make a hypothesis about how things could be better, try that out, like not having orthodoxy about this is how you build a car. Also, I would imagine not having unions and other things like that sort of wanting to keep things the way they are um the unions were very powerful in the american car industry and they were not particularly interested in changing the way assembly lines worked or people's job descriptions who've been doing the same job in the same way for x number of years we want to change things why because we think maybe we can make a better car having the flexibility to change things like that um really helped the japanese and the lessons of, of the Japanese auto industry of how you can make a car with fewer defects for less money and less time, you know, all, the, all basically just making a better car. Um, those lessons have been adopted by basically everyone else in the car industry at this point. Right. Germ- Germany had a similar attitude, but theirs was more like, every, you know, the typical German attitude. Everything has to be high quality, sturdy. They had their own orthodoxy. They still do. 
they weren't as sort of scrambly scientific methody as the the Japanese, but they definitely had like you want it to be it's going to be sound bad, but built like a tank, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like that's that's always been you know German craftsmanship, right? And so it's 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 a sort of pride in workmanship and durability and high quality mixed up with their own weird orthodoxy. And they were very early, and they have you know has to be said expertise from building all those machines of war. Um, that that experience goes a long way. And so the German cars were, I don't know how they came to be luxury brands, but uh, they were always. Uh, they wouldn't make a crap product. Everything was sturdy, made, maybe perhaps even over-engineered, mm-hmm. uh, made as as well as they could make it. They didn't quite keep up with the Japanese, so eventually the Japanese kind of ate their lunch as well, and the Japanese were like, we're just going to figure out what it takes to make the best quality car, where the Germans were like, this is the way you always make this part. It has to be in this way, and we'll tweak it every year, and we'll make sure it's good and solid, but don't change things too much. And eventually... Japanese cars were more reliable than than much more expensive uh, cars from Germany. Uh, England had its own reliability problems where they couldn't figure out electrical systems in cars because, again, the orthodoxy of like, well, you know, we'll make a, a beautiful car out of wood, but then electrical, blah, 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 we don't worry about that stuff. And it turned out that stuff became increasingly important. <laughs> um, and so that's where it was sort of in, in my childhood. Today, all cars are made in all sorts of different places. Everything is international. Your Honda is made in Ohio. Um, your Mercedes is made in, in Canada or Mexico. Like, it, it, the lessons have been spread around by the information age. Um, so it is less uh, dire and, uh, than it was. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of cars share uh, manufacturing technologies. The hybrid system that Toyota makes in its Priuses, hy- uh, Toyota licenses that to other car makers. So if you see another car maker with a hybrid car, uh, they may have licensed the hybrid system from Toyota or, the, and you know, a certain small set of companies make transmissions that everybody uses in it. So it is not as cut and dry as it, as it once was, but that, that sort of seed of everyone's car industry starting off in weird places. Uh, and then new people coming in, not encumbered by whatever their past, by whatever and everyone else's past happened to be. And then coming and eating other people's lunch. And then just, you know, fads and the, and the thing like the, the SUV fad really saved a lot of American car makers because they could sell you essentially crappy, cheap-to-build cars and sell them for a lot more money because it was right. a, a fashion trend. That's, that's like kind of the whole basis of the Explorer, right? And, yeah, and part and, of the problem and, with the rollovers and stuff. Yeah, well, and, and it's not just that was, it, you know, it, it's an ill-thought-out car designed to begin with, but like they could make them more cheaply because they, they couldn't believe it. Like we could sell these people just a tarted-up truck with leather seats in it and charge them obscene amounts of money because that's what people want. So it was great for uh, profit margins. Um, and it's the same type of orthodoxy that was keeping like other car makers from, from saying, well, we're not going to build one of those SUVs because, you know, we're Mercedes-Benz. We don't sell trucks you know or what we do but not those kind of trucks or right. in america we want our brand as a porsche you know we're not going to make an suv or a crossover or anything because we're porsche and we sell sports cars uh and they could have either stuck to that path and taken the high road and lost out on a huge amount of money or immediately realized that everyone was buying suvs and made one instead they all kind of took the middle path which was like hold out for a little while but then give in and so now the best-selling uh porsche is an suv the best-selling lexus is an suv you're kidding yeah you don't want to think about it wow um, if you're because it, that's what the kind of cars people want and so they call it an suv but like how really different is it like i, I remember back in college uh there was kind of a resurgent or there was a not resurgence, but there was the development of like what we now call minivans. Like <clears throat> suddenly, like Toyota made a really good, like kind of pretty affordable. It wasn't as like wacky and hippie looking as a VW, but like the 
uh, Toyota, not Highlander, but there was a, like my my friend's Toyota family, Forerunner? the Forerunner, maybe even before that. But they had this pretty cool like, eh, it suffered from that whole like it looks like an ibuprofen design thing. But it was a pretty cool. It had it had a good sound system. It was okay, and you know, and it wasn't super duper expensive. But like that that suddenly was like the go to every like minivans kind of came out of nowhere. Where you know, uh, suburban moms and dads would not go out and buy an Econoline or whatever to put their kids in. Right, but like, how different is a minivan from an SUV? Like, at what point does a minivan become an SUV? Well, so the original SUVs were, were body on frame, where they would build a frame with like sort of I beams. Like that's how you build a truck. You build you build a frame with wheels and an engine. Like an Explorer would be like a legitimate SUV back in the day. Yeah, it was it, not an Explorer, but it, what's the thing? Roderick's got a. Um, Oh, what is it GMC. suburban? Yeah, suburban. like a suburban. I remember like suburbans were like they were giant. They were they were like little trucks. Yeah, well, I don't know if the Suburban was body and frame. Maybe it still is. But body and frame is, is you make you make the undercarriage of the car with the wheels. You can see it on the assembly line. It's like big steel members connecting the wheel suspension and the engine. And then you put a body on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how most trucks are built. Uh, still, still are mostly. Um, and cars eventually became to be built on unibodies, where it's like when you see those robots welding things, and it looks like this big sort of shiny steel or steel combined with aluminum uh silver sort of exoskeleton carapace type thing mm-hmm. that that's all structural that that's what the car is made out of um the in the beginning days of suvs they would take the truck essentially truck chassis you know things from their their pickup trucks and other things like that and put a big body on it and sell it to you and it was cheaper for them to build because unibodies are more expensive it's much more complicated to make that big fan but cars were made with unibodies at that point because it made the car stiffer and you could make it lighter and it was less rattly and you know it was just a more solid kind of structure um but eventually they started making all the suvs with with unibodies too just because like you can't keep making the crappy old way forever i mean hell even the mustangs got independent resuspension now um so the old ways had to eventually fade and and with it some of the costs uh uh, you know the, the extra margins went away but still there's a premium on suvs and crossovers and that people will pay slightly more for what is essentially you know whatever whatever it happens to be a a Toyota Camry with a bigger body on it and jacked up a little bit, a Honda Accord with a bigger body and jacked up a little bit, they will pay more money for that, more than it costs you to put the bigger body on it. Um, but but these days, body-on-frame SUVs are rare, and everything is basically just built in the same way, but just depends on how high is it and how big is the body on top of it. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by MailRoute. You can learn more about MailRoute right now by pointing your web browser at mailroute.net slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. IT departments are expected to do more with less money today. This includes the really important stuff like stopping spam and virus attacks. End-of-life announcements for trusted hardware and software options make these decisions so much more difficult. First, Postini went away, and now MX Logic. Who can you trust to do the job well? Who can you trust to stick around? MailRoute. These are email nerds. They do one thing. They are nerds at email. They, they don't have a food court. Uh, they're, they're not going to sell you a funny hat. They're just going to deal with your email. And brother, do you ever need them? Because MailRoute will protect your email and your hardware against spam, viruses, and other attacks. There are no hardware or software requirements to install. All you have to do, you own a domain name. All, that's all you need to use MailRoute. MailRoute's team has focused exclusively on email protection since 1997. Their interface is easy to use and loaded with admin tools, including an API. It's all designed to make your life spam-free. MailRoute supports LDAP, Active Directory TLS mailbagging, 
outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people that are handling your mail. And right now, MailRoute is offering price matching for McAfee and MX Logic customers. Nothing wrong with that. So please go to the nerds who care more about your email than even you do. Stop spam today. Go get a free 30-day trial of MailRoute by going to MailRoute.net slash diffs, D-I-F-F-S. Listeners of Reconcilable Differences get 10% off the lifetime of their account. That's a very long time. You just go to MailRoute.net slash diffs. Or you can even send them an email. They get email at the email place. You can write to sales at MailRoute.net. MailRoute protects your email from spam and viruses. That is it. That is all they do. But they do it better, and they've been doing it longer than anybody in the business. So go check them out. MailRoute.net slash diffs. Our thanks to MailRoute for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I, uh, I guess, you know, there's, there's a question at the middle of this that I, I, if you ever answered this, I don't remember hearing it. So forgive me if this is a rerun, but you seem very interested in cars today. You've talked about being a teenager and like, I guess, reading car magazines and stuff. What made you so interested in cars? No, I mean, my parents weren't really into it. I mean, a Volvo station wagon is not a very exciting car. I mean, my mom's uh, midlife crisis car was not that exciting. <laughs> um, did she have two midlife crises? She kind of did because she got an Acura Integra after that. That's kind of, you know, uh, Datsun 280Z was her car. Turbo. That's pretty That's pretty sporty, pretty low to the ground, curvy little car, right? When she bought it, though, it was also pretty old. And so it was a used car and it wasn't that great. But anyway, um, my God, grandfather... That, to me, that's like the, the coked-up manager of the restaurant I worked at had yeah, a Datsun yeah. 280ZX. It was like such a coked-up restaurant manager car. Right, but imagine he eventually gets really old and sells that car, and my mom is <sighs> the one who buys it. Man, <laughs> like if you had one time. of these... I'm just Googling here, but if you had one of these from the 70s or 80s in pretty good condition, that's, that's the 70s one, or the older ones, are they're pretty sharp-looking. They got kind of generic-looking. But that's a pretty sweet car. So, but it wasn't something where, like, you and your, like, your dad, for example, like, it wasn't something where you and your dad like bonded over cars. That, that's a common way guys get into cars. So every time I was at my grandfather's house, which was kind of frequently because he only was like he was only like a half an hour away, um, the, his car was always on his driveway, and half the time the hood was up, and he was monkeying around or doing something in there. But I was never participating in that, and I was never into the car repairing culture. I think I mostly got into them kind of in middle school from reading car magazines in the library. And also seeing cars, uh, a lot of the cars around me, and then reading about them. Like, I, I remember one of the first cars I was excited to read about was the uh, Mercedes SL, uh, which, uh, convertible I saw a lot of around because there was a lot of people who had enough money to buy Mercedes convertibles. A two, small, small two-door Mercedes convertible. So oh, my they, God. The one I'm looking at looks almost English. It's uh, you really got, you got, sexy, bubbly, like kind of super curvy. You got to look at it from. You got to look at the models from like nineteen eighty seven. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, all right, those are the ones that I was seeing. Um, and so this car, I'd seen all over the place because at that point, for whatever reason, I could recognize cars and identify them, and I, I knew what they were. Oh no, the this is a, this is a dentist car. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> but they sell that car with the V twelve in it. Like they, what? there's little little number badges in the back of it, so you'd see, uh, you know. Uh, 500 SL, 600 SL. You could buy SL. a convertible with a 12-cylinder engine? Yes. So That's a terrible idea. The 600 SL was that car with the 12-cylinder engine. And the the, the S-Class 600 also had a 12-cylinder engine. There's a little discrete V12 badge somewhere on it, maybe, but it's mostly just the number on the back. So if you saw a 350 
uh, that wasn't an exciting car. But the car looked exactly the same, and the only difference on it was that the, there was a six instead of a six hundred instead of a three fifty that had a V twelve in it. Jesus. And I was like, and I was amazed by the same. I was like, wow, you know, because first of all, I didn't even know you could make twelve cylinder engines at CMFC, and then to have it in this tiny little two seat convertible car, and then to realize I've seen them going around like the dentists, you know, they they have those things. They're driving around in but them. But in a convertible, all you need to do is catch a little tiny bit of a curve with that kind of torque and like game over yeah it wasn't the days of stability control but yeah i mean those basically what i'm saying is i was drawn to them because i thought they were kind of mechanical marvels that you could apply technology uh sometimes in excess to do amazing things and once i got into them the same reason kind of into computers into technology you get into all the sorts of technological things about cars and you know, Mercedes was experimenting with active suspension. And I remember seeing television programs about these new things called anti-locked brakes and stability control and, you know, what future cars will be like and different types of engines and, you know, electric cars and the whole nine yards. And reading the car magazines uh, just got me more and more into that. So that's, that's I guess, what drew me to them. It's just as sort of me- uh, amazing mechanical uh, marvels that, that we have made. And the same way you might be into, like, jet planes or whatever. It's exactly right, the same right, right. attraction to me. Wow. I'm just looking. Here's one in 93, which is probably kind of contemporaneous. Um, so <laughs> six liter V12, maximum seating two. Uh, you want to you want to take a guess at the fuel economy? Uh, eleven miles per gallon. Very close. Thirteen city, eighteen highway. Oh, that's pretty good. Now here's the crazy part. In this one, automatic. Oh, it's the nineties tra- one. You look at the eighties one. That would be closer. Uh, automatic transmission. <laughs> yeah, no, they all had automatics. Mercedes would sell you a car with cloth seats and a stick shift in Europe, but in America they were a luxury brand, so they wouldn't bring over the stick shifts because that was like low rent, and they wouldn't sell you the cloth seats either. But today, if you, if you were buying a fancy Mercedes today, wouldn't you probably want a stick? No, they don't. You're not haven't been keeping up. Sticks are are going away. It's all automated manuals now. Automatics are automated manuals. Really? Yeah. Do you, do you remember your automatic transmission? I'm assuming you had automatics in most of your cars, right? Coming up. Yeah. 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 But I mean, like, I I had a the first car I ever bought in 1991 was a stick, and the my VW bus um, that I bought in '88 or 89 was a stick and the vw the 1996 vw jetta that we just donated to kqed last year was a stick it's a horrible car to have in san francisco so if you can think back to your automatic transmissions you might not my, my, my mom would never in a million years drive you know it was all automatics when but, I was but you up. put it into d right but there are there are still gears and you can feel it change them you put it into d you press on the gas pedal and right. it goes and you can feel when it changes gears do you have any sense of how many gears the automatic transmissions had like you know how many years stick shift had i thought three and like how your stick shifts i'm assuming were like four speed four speed five. or five speed four, four speed on the on the volkswagen five speed on the um on the Mazda, but I would guess three. I think of an, I think of like an American car. Or just when I think of a big car with an automatic transmission, I'm going to guess three. All right. So uh, automatic transmissions today have uh, up to nine gears on the fancy. Car. What? Nine. Wow. Okay. And I'm learning a lot. I did not know that. <laughs> and the stick shifts, some of them go up to seven, but there are very few stick shifts. Mostly it's automated manuals, which is basically like a manual transmission structured like a manual transmission but where a machine shifts for you which is different than an automatic transmission the torque converter but um and then of course there's continuously variable <laughs> that's transmissions. that's so weird that's like having a model train set that like makes itself for you that's so yeah. weird yeah 
Uh, I mean, well, it's you know, it's all for performance and fuel efficiency. Um, yeah. uh, and it used to be back when uh, we were young uh, that the cars with the automatic transmissions were faster because you could pick the gear you wanted to be in, you could hold it until exactly when you wanted to hold it. Uh, these days, the automated manuals are faster because machines can shift faster than human beings can. Yeah, but that it, makes sense. It's all from like Formula One technology. All this stuff came came from the, that world where it's all about performance, and it's like how many milliseconds does it take to get from one gear to the other? How long do you have to be off the gas? Because you do have to get off the gas during shifting at some point, and the computer can be off the gas for like you know twelve milliseconds, and a human. Well, can't. it's it's smarter about knowing exactly. I, again, I don't know anything about cars, but you know, it, it seems like it could be much smarter about knowing how not to stall, like knowing exactly the right amount of everything to apply. To, to maximally that's that's not why it's doing it but yeah i mean humans can do that too but like really what it was trying to do is it can exact it can do rev matching do you know what rev matching is on no. your stick shifts it's it's like when you are when you're shifting into a, a lower gear your engine needs to be going faster to correctly engage that gear um so what you want to do if you're oh, right. heel, heel toe driving is shift out of the gear you're in and say you're like braking in a turn because you're going to be in a lower gear when you exit the turn and then you want to blip the throttle so that the engine is sort of pre-primed at a higher RPM that you know it's going to have to be in when you shift into the lower gear. So that when you get into that lower gear, you don't get any engine braking from the lower gear having to spin the engine up to a higher RPM. Like Because if you're in like fourth gear at, at 3,000 RPM and you go down to third, you're not going to stay. If you're going, the car is going the same speed, you're not going to still be in 3,000 RPM. You're going to be much higher than that. right? So you don't want the... You don't want to engine brake. You want to get the engine up to the speed that you know it's going to be when you shift down into the thing. And anyway, computers can do that much better than humans can. They can get the, and even man, even manuals these days, they have manuals that when you shift with a clutch and, and three pedals and a stick and everything, when you downshift, they will automatically rev match the engine for you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to touch the gas pedal. They know you're shifting down into third. When you go down into third, they will pick up the engine RPM before third engages for you. But just kind of a weird thing. It's like. Why don't you just let the computer do it all, and that's an automated manual. Anyway, again, all racing technology. Cars are really weird. And then the final one is continuously variable transmissions, where it's essentially a series of concentric cones meshing with each other, and there's no fixed gears. And then what they, they do that to try oh, to Oh, that make, sounds very clever. They try to make fuel efficiency better, because then they can, they can basically have it in the exact quote-unquote gear ratio for the maximum fuel efficiency. Uh, those are the worst transmissions known to man. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> because the... the, the uh, the maximum fuel efficiency of an engine is usually with the engine running at an RPM that makes this terrible droning noise. Like, first of all, the, the speed of the engine no longer is connected to, to, the, to the speed of the car in the same way that you're used to. So it's like you're driving and there's this terrible moaning going on because the engine is operating at peak efficiency. But it's like it seems like it's revving too fast or it's revving at a constant speed, even though you're varying how you press on the pedal. It's really, really weird. And then they make those things feel like they have gears by making them jump from one fake gear ratio to the next, sort of like an automatic transmission to emulate. Oh, it's, it's a freaking mess. Wow. Yeah. The car, the car world is weird these days. I did not know any of this. Well, if you have to ever buy a new car, you should talk to me first. I can, I can help you. <sighs> My wife uh, went out and leased a car without even talking to me, which is probably the smartest way to do it. She just realized it was time, and she went and uh, leased a car. She's like, hey, check it out. Be, be home this afternoon. And she had a car, and I was like... So what did she get? Uh, she got a Volkswagen Jetta wagon. So you like those Volkswagens, huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't get a vote on this. Uh, I would have voted for some slightly more advanced, you know, electronics things. <laughs> You're just upset because it doesn't have the right uh, cell phone integration. You don't care about the car. 
<laughs> well, it doesn't have a USB. I mean, it's, you know, we can, we can fake it, but, um, yeah, no, but it's fine. I mean, like, and like, I don't know, this is not necessarily germane for this visit, but, uh, I thought, uh, you know, just, just, just when I thought I was out, I, I thought we were done. I thought we were done with cars. So you're done with cars. You like, that's it. There, there will be no more cars. I will never have to go any place that I can't take public transportation or an Uber. Well, I was, it, it, well, if you're curious, my, my, my thought technology was like a lot of people, hmm, like a lot of people right now, there's a lot of people I know where there's been this, I don't know if this is a meme or something, but there's a very similar feeling that a lot of us have, which is like, this is the last kind of whatever this kind of car is that I ever want to own, right? So that's a non-self-driving car. Uh, you, you thought we're you know, done with internal combustion? Done no, 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 no. Well, no, I mean, well, well, okay. So like, so brass tacks, my wife has a job, like an adult, and she needs to get there. And so it can either be like, 25 minutes of driving in a 25 to 40 minutes in a car. This is in San Francisco. 25 to 40 minutes in a car, or it can be uh, 30 minutes to seven hours <laughs> on public transit, right? You know how it is when you roll the dice. So it's a quality of life issue for her. Like she has a, a real grown lady job right now. She keeps moving up very rapidly and like she has stuff to do. So, you know, aloha. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we've done this. But there was this thing where we got rid of the, um, the old Jetta, which, which I think was a lease. It had been like a, it had been like a rental car or something like oh this thing had been treated like a two dollar whore. It was a terrible old car that we should not have bought when we bought it, but we bought it. It was great. We needed it because we both worked in Silicon Valley at the time. She worked at Stanford and down in Palo Alto, and I worked in Menlo Park. But so you know, we love this car. It's great. We drove our daughter home from the hospital and la da 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 da. And I was glad to see it go. We donated it to KQED. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what kind of money they get out of it. It seems kind of like a front to me. But I felt this sense of relief of like, okay, we're done with this. We're done with all of the things required to keep up a, you know, 15 whatever year old car. Um, But I, I had this thought technology where I was like, it would be fun to see, like, let's try it for six months. Let's see if we can get away with this, with having a kid who has to go places and being a family that needs groceries and stuff. You know, because like I say, we're a very walk. It's a very walkable neighborhood. There's all kinds of things have changed since 2000 or whatever it was. 2000, yeah, 2000 when we bought this car. You know what I mean? Like, so many things have changed. We're like, uh, I would like to see if we could kind of go without. Um, but you know, in the end, I'm glad she got it. But there's still this part of me that's like, this is going to be the last of this kind of car that we ever own probably i'm not saying it's gonna like it's gonna run on french fry grease or be able to drive itself but i want the next car i've got to be like fundamentally different and to be more of a vote about the future than a way to truck around the past your idea that you thought maybe you could go without one you forgot the uh the most important lesson of the 90s people love their cars yeah do you remember that one uh super train the original super train the super train uh, tv movie Singles, the movie Singles. Do you remember that? Oh, the, uh, oh, the Singles with yeah. the grunge soundtrack. Right. So the mo- it was the movie Singles, and the 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 male lead, and I forget who he was. He, his whole idea was this a super train that was going to be this uh, public transportation system that they were going to build in whatever. I don't think I ever was. saw Singles. I think it might have been Seattle or whatever. You, you should watch. No, it was it. definitely you, Seattle. It had uh, it had the guy from um, the the bully guy from uh, My Bodyguard. What's his name? Matt Damon. No, Matt, no the no, other one. Yeah, Matt. Uh, Matt Dillon? Yeah, Matt Dillon yeah. was was the male lead. But anyway, that the the, the nerdier uh the, he was the 
the love interest thing. But the, the nerdier guy was with his super train idea. Every time he would pitch super train, like this is going to revolutionize public transportation in Seattle and blah, blah, blah. Everyone would be like, this is nice. They'd say, yeah, but people really love their cars. Right. That's the, always the thing. So why did your wife come home with the lease? People really people love, love their I don't, cars. I don't know if he loves her. She loves her car, but they love the freedom that it gives you. Uh, to not have to mix with the rest of humanity and public transportation. Yes, yes. And also, like, you know, I'm, um, whatever. This is, <laughs> I'm such a wussy, liberal, non-macho guy about tons of parts of this. But I'll tell you what I do get about the car part. Like, you know, whatever, the whole, like, oh, American spirit, open road. Like, oh, shut up, grow up. But, like, the, the part that I do get is, like you say, being in your own area, in your own bubble, with your stuff, your stuff always goes here. Here's where your coffee goes. Here's the music that you listen to. Like, and whatever happens in the rest of the world, you get to have your own bubble. I think, like, all the stuff about, like, oh, the American car trip, blah, 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 like, whatever. I think that's a 40-year-old idea. What I think still is true is people like to be unmolested when they move around and to have freedom. And to basically be able to have this ad hoc way to get from here to there and back in the way that comports with how they like to roll. Yeah, you can leave when you want to leave. Yes. You don't have to wait for the next bus. You don't have to wait for the next train. doesn't to- matter how many other all, people all, are there. Yep, all totally true. All totally true. Um, the um, Let's see, which part do I want to grab on this? One part of it, I, I don't know if we have time to like get into this, but like I think, I was trying to think about this. Did you initially have this in as a topic earlier today and then take it out? Was it in there at some point? Yeah, I was shuffling things around. Okay, all right. Because I've been thinking about it. I was sitting there thinking, like, I don't know if I want to talk about cars. But, like, one thing that went through my mind is I think I missed a window on this because uh, we did not have a lot of money. My mom would not let me get a driver's license when I turned 16. I had a learner's permit when I was 15. But I don't, you know, my mom, who, who cobbles together a lot of her ideas from the world about her reckons about how things will work, she basically said, like, no, you can't get a driver's license or my insurance will go up. So I didn't drive until I was 18 or 19. It was I was always depending on other people to shuttle me around. So you're from – you needed to have your, your learner's permit at 15 because you needed to help drive the tractor to help on the farm, right? <laughs> Absolutely. This is, the, this is the tale that we were told about the rest of the country, about why does the rest of the country get to have their learner's permit in 15? It's like, well, they needed to have it. Wait, whoa, whoa, so whoa, back up. Well, what is that? What are, you, what are you saying? I've never heard this. What is this? In New York, I could get my permit when I was 16. Or 16 or 17, I think. What you? Well, how old do you have to be to have an operator's license? I think you could get it at 17, and then 18, you got your full real license. We were always like You're a year. You're kidding. We were like, the the whole rest of the country we knew could get I their stuff. And, and it's not it's not that big of a difference. Like, it's like a year, right? But yeah. when you are that age, you know. <laughs> that year is a big year. <laughs> that year is a huge difference. And so yeah. what we would always complain to the adults in our lives, like, why does the rest of the country get to have their learner's permit when they're 14 or 15 or whatever obscene age it was in the middle of the country? And they would say, oh, it's so they could drive the tractors to help out on the farms. And that got grandfathered into their laws. And that's why, which was probably total BS. It's just yeah, because, I've never heard that. Anyway, uh, in New York, uh, I don't know if it's still the case that they're a year behind everybody else. But yeah, no, you can't, couldn't even get a learner's permit until you were 16. I rem- might have even been 17. I don't remember. But this is why I say I feel like I missed a window. So the first driving that I did, um, actually, we never got to my dream job when we talked about jobs. But did I ever tell you about the, like when I delivered flowers? Did I ever tell you about that? You did not. That was one of the other items we had in there was... Uh, Best job uh, ever? Yeah. It was, is this well, the one? Well, yeah. This is a super fast story, mostly in the interest of talking about the car stuff. So, you know, we were on the edge. Like, we just did not have a lot of flexibility, especially with money. And when you don't have flexibility with money, you don't have flexibility with other stuff. It makes you very 
um, careful and conservative about things. So, like, I was bumming rides with my friends. I had a friend who mostly had access to a car. I had another friend. I dated a gal who had a, what was that, Pontiac Fiera? What was that weird little? Fiero. Fiero, yeah. Fiero. Yeah, it was a rear I, engine. Rear engine Pontiac sometimes caught fire. Yes. But it was pretty foxy in uh, 1984. Mm, mm. <laughs> I don't think it was ever. It was trying to be foxy. I'll give it that. Yeah. Well, I don't know, man. I was 17, and I had a Catholic girlfriend with a car. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, but so I say, what I'm saying here is I missed my window. Like my Ericsson automotive window, I just I missed it completely. So I didn't drive, couldn't drive. I finally got the full-on operator's license at some point. Uh, so long story short, because this is a giant story, but basically I had this one like week and a half of my life in June of 1986 May of 1986, June of 1986, when everything changed. It was totally bananas. It was one of those like, ah, gosh, I should have more agency in my life because maybe I could make it good. It had an incredibly depressing year of not being in school, listening to punk rock, and being very sad. I had some great friendships, but I was a very sad tomato. Long story short, I found out within this one-week period, like I got, a, I got accepted to go to this college that I ended up going to. I got the money that I needed mostly to go there. I was going to go to college. I found out, like, out of nowhere, like, oh, you're going to go to college in two months or three months, which was, I mean, you know, you, you can't even imagine how giant that was for me. Uh, that, and I got a job. <laughs> I finally got a job after having quit McDonald's months earlier to sit around and read Sartre and, and be sad all the time, which is actually literally what I did. I, like, listened to the Dead Kennedys, watched Jeopardy, and read Jean-Paul Sartre. That's, like, what I did for months. And um, <laughs> it's just exactly as sad as it sounds. But I got this job. My mom heard about this job where House of Flowers, just down the street, over over here at, uh, at Madison and I forget where, but just down the street, House of Flowers needs somebody to deliver flowers. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's really good, but what am I going to drive? And like, here's the good part. They pay you to deliver flowers and they have a car that you can drive. They have like a 19... <laughs> the flower 19, mobile. The, <laughs> I called it the pansy wagon. <laughs> of course I did. did. I actually called it the pansy wagon. Uh, and it was a yellow Toyota Corolla seems too fancy, but it was old. I mean, it was, it was a late 70s, early 80s, like just beater uh, Toyota wagon. But John Syracuse, it was the best job I've ever had in my life. I was so full of joy. So I could ride around with my Panasonic boombox, listening to Husker Du, really, really loud, drinking 50 cent. It was the summer. I got to drink 50 cent big gulps like all summer, listening to Husker Du and just driving around and bringing people joy by delivering flowers. It was the greatest job ever. I made, you know, minimum wage with people don't tip in Pasco County, but it was the best. And I did that until I uh, left for left for college. But that's basically when I started driving. When I started driving was when I got a job delivering flowers. And uh, so I was uh, 18, 19 at that point, 18 or 19, yeah, 19, I guess. 19-year-old kid just driving around in a Toyota wagon listening to punk rock, and it was fantastic. So that's what, so what I'm trying to say is, like, I never got the whole, like, well, son, you get no point, we got to learn how to fix the car, and you're going to learn, and we're going to drive around in circles here in the parking lot. Never had any of that. Did a little bit of test driving with my mom and grandma, but no, mostly. I didn't really drive until I got a job. How crazy is that? Well, but where did you, how did you get your license? How did I get my license? I mean, I think I went and got the full-on license. My mom, I think maybe I had disabused my mom of this idea that I had. That there's some government agency that scans for who has operator's licenses and then raises mom's insurance as a result. John, there's a great history of magical thinking in my family that I continue to this day. 
but at some point, yeah, I did get a full on. I think when I was nineteen, I got a full on license. Right, and, well, that's what I'm saying. Like you had to have learned to drive and taken a driving test. When did that go down? Uh, so I had driven around mostly with my mom and practicing, and I think we went to the place out by the old mall, and there was a DMV there in a strip mall, and I did the test, and it went fine. When you were learning, what car were you learning on? Good question. My mom's. My mom had bought. Oh, it's a really good question. Oh, God, there's so much family history in this. I can't get into this. Ah, so after the divorce, oh, this is such a sad, long story. I wish I could do a whole episode on this because it's, it's so much about cars and sadness. But basically, okay, the car that my mom bought with my dad's insurance money when he died, uh, she was still driving when we moved to Florida with this horrible man that she married. He swapped cars with her and so said, hey, look, you take my fancy Chrysler New Yorker two-door and I'll take this old piece of junk, 1975 Catalina. And he ruined it. He drove it into the ground. He would leave bait in the back of the car. It just, it, <laughs> it, it just, in addition to the fact that our life was falling apart with this horrible man, it just tore my mother's heart out that the car she bought that she thought my dad would have liked um, was like being ruined by this guy. Anyway, then they got divorced <laughs> and we're stuck with a car that smells like squid. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was so horrible. And finally, my mom's boss sold her his, I want to say, maybe five-year-old LeBaron. It was some kind of like a like – a, like think about an early 80s car that's super boxy, has way too much electrical stuff that doesn't work, and it had an eight-track player. So she bought that off her boss, and that's mostly what we drove around in. You had a column shifter in that one? Uh, PRNDL2, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's on, it's where, like, the turn signals are. You grab yeah, it. Yeah, just with on the, the right, you grab the thing, yeah, yeah. As opposed to being a stick shift that p- comes out of the center console on the floor. No, it wasn't a center console. It was a PRND2L right there on the tree, yeah. Yeah, and so that's what, that's what you learned on? It wasn't a stick? Uh, no, God, no, I didn't learn it. It's my girlfriend, my first girl, my third girlfriend in college taught me stick. I'll bet you did. <laughs> uh, so, so you're driving. It's, it's the fact that this is such a non-event for you it just shows, like, I, maybe like how permissive the, the, the laws are. I blotted are out and, so much of my past, John. Why do you make me remember my past? <laughs> in the in the middle of Florida, they just they just throw the license at you when you're. You made me 15, cry 16, about a Pontiac, you dick. Fifteen, sixteen years old. Yeah, it's all about right. the cars. Yeah. Um, I did look it up. Uh, New York State. It's uh. 16 for a permit and then you have to wait six months after you get your permit to to take your road test so you're was there other stuff like that in new york like before the whole like you have to be did you always have didn't you always have to be no wait a minute it's is it 19 to drink in new york before the uh highway laws oh i i i think for my entire life it was, it was always drinking yeah i don't yeah, remember florida I was, mean florida was 19 i just missed being grandfathered in in 1986. I don't know if anyone was grandfathered in New York. I'm looking Do you remember at what happened? I mean, because this relates to cars. Do you remember what happened? I have they, no idea. I was assuming they, it was basically, so basically drunk it was driving like, thing? Kind of. It was the Wild West. So basically every state was different. It could be anywhere from, I think, I don't think it was 17. I think it was 18 to 21. Drinking ages were all over the map. Long story short, is if memory serves, the hammer came down. Somebody in the Reagan administration said, look, okay, so here's the new plan. Is like, you guys really need to change your drinking age to 21. I imagine partly because of insurance companies. I'm just guessing. But anyway, so here's the deal. Everybody's got to be told, oh, sorry, you know, uh, states' rights. Uh, and they said, okay, well, then here's the new thing, which is uh, you got like whatever, a year or two to change to 21 for your drinking age or you don't get highway funds anymore. This was 1984 or 5. 
Yeah, and then but, it, good old Reagan. In those days, we were like, <laughs> oh, we're not going to get federal highway funds? We better do it. Whereas these days, they'd be like, we don't get federal money for health care? Fine, we won't. We'll just won't take it. <laughs> we just won't take it. We'll let our citizens die. <laughs> Anything is more important than taking money from Obama. But in those days, they said, you know what? We do want money from the federal government for highways, so I guess we'll do it. And it helped. I, that it was and I might be, I might be slightly misremembering this or like overly simplifying this, but that's kind of what it came down to. Was basically no, it was serious dough. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars, and so they were able to bring that to bear in a place like Florida. So it had been eighteen. It got turned to nineteen, and then I was mostly pals with guys who had graduated the year before me. I graduated. 85 that most of my friends graduated in 84 but they were all very comfortably in the in the grandfathered in phase and i totally missed it but um so what were we talking about the car yeah with with the the drinking stuff like no one paid any attention to the drinking age everyone was drinking in high school so the drinking age just didn't affect first of all i'm not a big drinker anyways it didn't matter but if i can touch everyone but you could see that it wasn't something people it wasn't people like planned and stressed about no, they they just drank. It didn't matter, right? Wow, but the driving wow. the driving thing did affect people because I don't I mean I guess people didn't want to drive without a license. I guess they figured that was a more serious offense than drinking. Who knows if it really was? But there was a I think there was a time when that was absolutely true. We would we would drive around and I mean like we we were even aware of the whole mothers against drunk driving. We were of the age where they would park a wrecked car in front of the school. Oh, but yeah. like still a common way to drink was one person would drink a little bit less and drive around. And that was a lot safer than going somewhere and drinking because you could get caught, like at the beach or whatever. Oh, we were smarter than that. We we were we were uh, smart. We were better educated than that because, like I said, the, the direct car in front of the school, dare, mad, the whole nine, yeah. like it was all uh, you know such a huge thing that even though we were all drinking when we were in high school, even when we were like sophomores and juniors, we would designate somebody as the person who's not drinking and who's driving, and that person would not drink and they would drive. I kind of, if you like, designated driver. Yeah. No, we just mm-hmm. did that as a matter of course. Um, and it wasn't really an issue because there was always somebody who probably didn't want to drink anyway. Um, and <laughs> the only issue was that we had a limited selection of people who could drive because, again, you couldn't drive. Oh, because like, you had to be. Oh, yeah, I get you, it. I you, get if, it. If you were 17, I think you could drive like a normal person. If you were 16, you could have your permit. If And if you were 16 and had to pass your driver's license, you could drive, but not without a, like an 18-year-old in the car with you. Like you couldn't just drive yourself by yourself in a car with a bunch of teenagers until you were 17 so you'd always have to have some right. upper class that was that was a restricted when you had the car. r on your license that a restricted license in florida meant that at the age of 15 you can get a restricted license which means that a fully insured 18 maybe at least 18 plus operator had to be in the front seat while you were driving and then, then there were other things like i think you could only drive during daylight hours and stuff yeah that's what a permit is when you're 16 in new york that's a learner's permit yeah okay yeah, but so and that extra year, like again, it doesn't sound like much, but it was oh, it was like the end. Of, it was the end of the world for everyone because we would know what the rest of the state is doing. You'd be fifteen or whatever graduate in high school and realize I can't even start learning until next year. Uh, and if there was like a kid in your grade who was a little bit older and they got into that phase in the summer and you didn't, um, yeah, that, that was difficult. So for me though, I, I was the reason I was asking you what car you drove on is you you. you it's such a non a non like the learning to drive and the test is you didn't mention at all and that is like the most pivotal part of my entire early car history is that whole ordeal like you didn't you didn't mention it all until i asked about it and then you said oh yeah and no, i learned to drive i took the test i got my license well did you take driver's ed yeah so i took driver's ed i think driver's school. ed was compulsory in florida i mean it was everybody just took driver's ed when i was a yeah, you have sophomore. to to get there's I think there's that was just reading the New York website. Oh, the it, movies. All, oh, the movies. <laughs> all, the, the ages I was quoting you, I think only count if you've taken a driver ed thing. But yeah, so it was it was the driver ed movies, 
from the 50s and 60s, all of them shot in California because there was huge mountains in the background. I've never unbuckled a dead man. <laughs> yeah. All, all those movies, these simulators or whatever, like these little, you'd sit in, in, in this seat where you had a wheel, right? And they'd play a movie in front of you. And if you turned the wheel at the right time, you, like a green light went on. And if you didn't, you <laughs> it's know, like dra- no, dra- Dragon's Lair. <laughs> right. But nothing changed on the screen, no matter what oh. happened. So <laughs> the room was dark. <laughs> well, that'll and, be handy. <laughs> and you'd be sleepy. And yeah. Anyway. Took Drive Red. The, the, the worst part of Drive Red was like there was the classroom portion, and then there was the car portion. And I, always, right. I always think back to these poor people who were the Drive Red instructors. So it was always, it was always, always, always uh, coaches at our school. That was, was like there was always. We should talk about this. There was always cherry jobs for like there was like the person there was the teacher who had to watch kids during detention. That was the soccer coach. There was the person who quote unquote taught quote unquote driver's ed. That was the head football coach who just sat there and talked to football players the entire time. There were these cherry jobs at our school that were always a way to like pay the coaches. We did not have as big a coach culture in in my school, at least. So there's no way in hell a coach would be doing driver ed. It seemed to me that it was dedicated people doing driver ed who had never, they weren't teachers and they weren't coaches. They were just these other poor people, and they would have to be there after school with a bunch of students who didn't want to be there. And there was the classroom portion, which was boring. Then they would take the students out in groups in, into Ford Fairmonts, white or light blue Ford Fairmonts, which is a terrible car. Go Google it for like 19—I don't know. They weren't 90s-era cars, even though it was the, you know close to the 90s when I was in high school. They were boats. They were old cars. Um, and how many people would be in the car? I think five four. people in the car, yeah, instructor, and, instructor and four students. Um, and so you'd have three students wedged into the back seat, and the Fairmonts. This was a '70s Fairmont, not the really big ones. So four students in the back seat could get tight. Um, and then there's an instructor in the passenger seat, and the the driver in the driver's seat, and tool around by the school, and the the driver would yell at you. And were, were you on the streets? Would, just the, like the secondary roads around the high school, like never really going on highways, and just. But it was like residential. Yeah, stop signs, turn signals, going in and out, going into parking slots, and then you know we'd pull over to the side of the road, and then someone would get out of the driver's seat, and we'd switch places. And the three people in the back seat are just <laughs> there, squished up against each other. People who very often would not have even talked to each other in, in the the you know the jungle that is high school, but now have to be wedged into the back seat oh, together, so where worst. everybody was sweaty and smelly because the cars didn't have air conditioning and it was hot. Depending on when you're taking driver ed. And yeah, for us it was K cars. It was all like like K cars. Yep, yep. And you're, you're rolling down the windows and taking turns, and everybody's angry and everybody's frustrated, <laughs> and you're, you're annoyed when the person who's driving can't drive because you're in the back seat lurching around and they're trying to parallel park and you're bored out of your mind and it's not your turn yet, but when it's your turn, then the three people in the back of the seat are going to yell at you. Anyway, drive red was fairly uneventful for me because I was like, whatever. Like, you just have to get through it. We were all just there enduring it because you had to. You had to do it to get, you know, the the, the good – get your stuff in the good years. Uh, you know, if you wanted to get your permit at 16, your license at 17, you had to take driver red. That's so, so it was interesting. Like, think, that think, we about the, think about that kind of weird partnership, though. Like, I remember it being something – I could be remembering this wrong, but this would be 1983 or 84. I remember it being about lower insurance, maybe. There was something where, like, if you if you took driver's ed, you got lower – like, you know, I guess markedly lower insurance. Yeah, and according to this – you don't need uh, parents' consent to get your license if you have a driver's ed certificate and you're 17. Wow, that edgy. might have also been a factor. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, all our parents were making us take it because we were from a place where your parents make you do things. Um yeah so and i i didn't think that was a big deal because that was like that's not where i was learning to drive to be clear i don't think that's where anybody was learning to drive. i don't think it's possible 
<laughs> to learn to drive in that environment. There's so many. There's so many things wrong with that. Yeah, it's just something you had to endure, like so many things about uh, childhood, right? Where I was learning to drive is the same place you were. You go with a parent in usually some old cruddy car that they have to like an empty parking lot, and you know your parents try to teach you how to drive without yelling at you too much. Um, and I learned on stick shift. Whoa, really? Yeah, like that's where I initially we had stick shift cars, not all stick shift cars, but we had some stick shift cars, and I wanted to learn it, and they wanted to teach it to me. And so you're you know trying to learn from from go, never having sat behind the wheel of a car with a stick shift. It's a different experience. We also had automatic cars, um, and I you know we would practice with them too, but mostly I was practicing with the stick shift cars. I don't know if that helped or hurt me, um, but the the uh, my difficulty started when it came time to take my driver's test at that point i had done driver ed i had my permit for six months time to schedule my driver's test the question is what car do i take my driver's test in do i take it in the volvo station wagon with a stick shift do i take it in the uh mazda minivan with an automatic and there are pros and cons each one stick shift Mm -hmm. like you know you might impress the instructor hey i can drive a stick shift on the other hand you're just learning to drive. You're not very good with the stick shift, so maybe it wouldn't be all that impressive. It's risky. The, the, the stick shift has a lot, a lot of like risk of like potential catastrophe. But the minivan harder to park, probably. Yeah, minivan not really good visibility. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what the driver's tests are like in Florida. I guess they maybe they just uh, they look at you and ask you if you know where the steering wheel is. I don't know what the, the procedure is, but the New York driving <laughs> test. That's fairly regimented. I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> fairly regimented series of steps that you have to do. They want yeah. you to, to do a certain number of things. And the particular two that you practice in drive red is they want you to do a three point turn. They want you to do parallel park. All right, and so those those are the two most difficult. Everything else is just like driving around uh, on streets and turning. It's all just secondary roads. They just want to see you make left turns, make right turns, change lanes, stop at stop signs, obey the speed limit. Uh, uh, you know, but the difficult parts are the parallel parking. So again, with the stick shift. Do you want to be having to think about uh, just, you know, stalling the engine or just driving in, in the easy parts or even right. just like feathering the throttle to back up very carefully? It's more difficult to do when you're trying to do the parking maneuvers or your choice is a minivan where you don't have to worry about any of that stick shift stuff. But uh, this was a four wheel drive minivan, very high off the ground, terrible visibility, terrible turning circle, and you're going to parallel park that. And so I chose to do it in the minivan because I didn't want to, I wasn't confident enough in my stick shift abilities and I just didn't want to have to think about that. And like when you learned on stick shift and automatic, it's like, oh, well, this is just so much easier. All you do is press the go pedal and the stop pedal and steer. There's nothing else to do in the car. Um, and so I did that uh, as soon as I possibly could. Like, you know, I was probably 16 and a half. Like, you know, got the permit when I was 16, learn and then take the driver's test. And during the parallel parking, I was not able to get the minivan in in a satisfactory manner where it was oh, the correct, no. correct distance from the curb. That's the tough part. That's the, if, if they're measuring you on like, can you fit in the spot? You can usually get away with it. But I remember it being, I want to say 18 inches. Yeah. I don't know, think I've it. gotten within 18 inches of the curb in 15 years. I, I mean, I wasn't good at, at, at parallel parking at all, but I'm trying to get in the first, first attempt. I was too close and hit the back wheel on the curb and then tried again. And I was too far away. And they were like, Nope. Oh, that the, the sucks. Drive back, right? And then you have to make an appointment to take the test again. You don't get to take right it in. right away again. And then you got to wait for your appointment to come, but it's like months, right? Um, and that was really depressing to me because I felt like, I was like, maybe I made a mistake doing that one. I'm like, well, no, I just need to learn how to park, parallel parking. Because 
in the suburbs, there is no reason to ever parallel park. Like, the only time I ever parallel park is when practicing for the driving test. It just did not come in, in regular driving. You no, know, it's, fu- it's funny you should say that because it, it's, a, it's a very – it's a huge part of living in San Francisco, especially anywhere where there's housing. Like, all there is mostly – not all there is, but mostly what there is is parallel parking. That was a beyond abstract idea to me. First of all, it made no sense to me because I, I had a rough idea of what parallel meant. And I thought, wait a minute. Like when you go to the mall, aren't those cars parked parallel? They're parallel to each other. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot more sense. No, no, but it was a completely abstract exercise. Nobody parallel parked. The main rule in Florida was you have to pull in, don't back in. Like when you go to the beach or you go to the mall, always, you know, that's just like like a big convention. But no, we, you never parallel parked and everybody sucked at it. It's an, it's an art form in San Francisco. Like being good at parallel parking is an art form. Yeah, it's definitely a city skillet. If you live in a city, you would have well, to Well, especially acquire. out here where these houses were built somewhere between the 20s and the 40s mostly. And they have usually a garage and two stories. They were meant to be originally – most of them were meant to be two-story two family homes. Some – I'm sorry. When I say two-story, you know what I mean. There's a garage underneath and there's two floors above. Like that's like where I live. And uh, – but like nobody ever intended to park a car on the street. I mean not really – I mean, that's why people buy smart cars. Like, parallel parking in our neighborhood is like, oh, it's somewhere between Thunderdome and gambling. Like, it's it's really difficult. Yeah, and I'm not, not quite sure why they make it. And the same thing with a three-point turn, which is not, oh, yeah. not, not a move that you find yourself having to make a lot in the suburbs with these, you know, you just... But did you learn tricks? Because I remember learning... What I will give them in, in driver's ed is, like, there are things that I learned in driver's ed. I don't know if they're right... I don't know if they're the best way, but there are a handful of things to this day that I think about every single time I get behind the wheel. Number one, I feel guilty that I did not walk around the car and inspect the car. <laughs> That's remember the best. that? That's the best, yeah. <laughs> every single – because in the videos, they'd show you, here's some teens walking around and checking their tires literally every time they get in their car. Oh, So here, here's the thing about that, right? So they show you that in right. the video and everything, right? And then as a teenager, because your brain hasn't fully formed yet. What, what what I was thinking was when it comes to take my driver's test, like they wanted you to meet the the person who you would take the test with out of the car. Should I walk this around? Is your, this is your Kobayashi yeah. Maru. Should I walk around the car before right. getting in? Because driver's ed is ha- like you said, you got to walk around the car. But as a teenager, right. you're embarrassed to do something so weird. So it's you're like, like a performance. Right? When the guy comes over and says, and he's coming <laughs> nice over to meet you, Mr. Harris. Right. Excuse me while I inspect the car. Right. Should I do that or not? Right. It that, seems super nerdy. Because yeah. You've never seen a human do it except for a no one has engineer. ever done that. Right. Right. And then for the <laughs> test, you're like, but isn't this the time, the one time I should do it? But but again, as a teenager, but can I bring myself to do something right. so right. incredibly? embarrassing and, well, and, and like the, for, for, for the listener like i, I just want to be clear here that in the same way that now you you would never see anybody get in a car without putting on a seatbelt, right like you watch tv or like with your family like you don't have to ask people to put on a seatbelt anymore that it makes a sound right like we all know that you put on a seatbelt in a car that's like like you know suck up your dignity and put on a seatbelt. We were given a view of the world in driver's ed that as as consistently as people wear a seatbelt today, every American walked around the perimeter of their car. They looked for, is there detritus mm-hmm. around the edges of the car? Have you checked the pressure of your tires? Is there any damage that, that might have happened? Have you what run over a person recently and their head is wedged in the wheel well in the back of your car? It could Maybe be stuck underneath. It's a, it's a very large fender. You should check. Run your hand under there. 
But the, the, every it would always start. It was so, but it was hilarious because, and again, this is one of those hilarious, hilarious like heuristics because you're like, how much of this am I really supposed to do versus like how much of this like, like now today I know like always signal your turn. Like if you don't signal your turn, you are a garbage person. But like I can't tell you the last time I walked around the car. I'll see. Right. If you, you have to check like, if your car is in good working order. Like as if you're going the visual inspection is going to tell you anything <laughs> with your X-ray eyes. You're going to know the suspension strut is falling. I off. look to see if there's a Snapple bottle or some ketchup under the tire. But that's pretty much it. <laughs> Yeah, so I, on my on my first driving test, when the, the person came over, I figured, I, I eventually decided, look, I, look, if you're ever going to do this, this is the time that you have to do it, as embarrassing as it might be. And I started to do it, and the guy said, just get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> the driver, the, the driving test instructors were very angry. Like, DMV employees I've never had a problem with, but the New York State driving test, I mean, you can imagine how the driving test instructors would be very angry, because all they do all day is decide whether people know how to drive and i get a lot get a lot of people who and, it's, and it's it's peculiar to long island it's not like manhattan people it's it's, yeah. it's all oh, yeah, long yeah. island right okay that was my first driving test and I, I made one attempt at the parallel park and hit the rear tire on the curb made a second attempt got in he looked and decided it was too far away he said head back that was it driving test over then i oh, wait no. you know then i wait an interminable amount of teenager time for my next attempt to get it and also by the way now i'm super like depressed like my status has gone down because i'm older than a lot of my friends and i could have in theory had my license but now i don't so i had to say hey, i went for my driver's test and i didn't get my license which is you know how you're gonna get your license and then you come back and you say i didn't that oh is- no no at this point you're like you're like uh steve rogers not passing the physical it's yeah, like that, no, you're it's, covered with shame it's exactly and then i have to wait i cannot get out of this until i wait all right so i wait i practice i wait i practice second time comes I make I decide to do the minivan again because I had been practicing with it. I go, uh, you know, I also didn't bother doing the walk around the car thing. I think it was like pulling out of the little parking area on this little street, you know, making a right turn onto some other road. Uh, I pulled out and he felt like I didn't leave sufficient room. The car behind me had to brake. Uh, and he said, turn around, go back. That's it. So I didn't even get a chance to do parallel parking on the second test. Second That's test, it? Second test was the car, you know, the car didn't honk or anything, but I pulled out, uh, you know, I, I made a bad decision about when to pull out and the car on this, you know, 30 mile an hour road had to slow down uh, so that he wouldn't hit me. I, I mean, it was a decision I wouldn't make now as, a, as an adult driver who knows what he's doing. You? But that was it for that. He said, turn around, go, turn back. go back. I did make a three point turn to turn around, although I don't think he was impressed. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> slow claps <laughs> right so came back second time again wait several weeks seemed like a very long time and again having to say i took the test again and didn't pass it right oh, no um third time <laughs> third time i you know minivan uh, minivan again because at this point i feel like this is my car this is the car that i'm you know doing all my stuff in uh take the test do the three-point turn parallel park beautiful drive back uh to where i'm going to park the car to get out to tell my father that i have passed the test it's a left-hand turn i put my signal on i wait until it's clear i go the the instructor decided that i went at a time when it wasn't really as clear as i thought it was fail four three times three failures three failures three failures that time i had passed the entire test i had done everything three-point turn parallel park with minivan beautifully made a left turn you could taste not, it. It was right like, there. Was I was right there. Right there. All I, literally all I had to do was make a left turn and then pull to the side of the road oh, where uh, park. And 
that left turn. And again, no one honked at me. This is like a 30 mile an hour speed limit road with people tooling along at 25 miles an hour because they know it's a student test area. And I pulled out and he decided that that was a dangerous move to do that. I didn't leave it. I should have waited for that car to go by. Probably should have waited for that card again. I probably wouldn't have made that decision now. But you're excited. You, but then you you're know, overthinking it. You end up overthinking. Feel, oh it. no! By this time, I was all so inside my head about this, especially oh, after the no. one where it was like the first turn out of the right turn, like the right turn out of the testing area. That's what it's going to be. That's an easy one. Like yeah, that's no, a gimme. That's a gimme. The right turn. You got right. that. I, I mean, yeah. So it was, and I, I personally, I think that right turn was probably fine. Like that, any adult competent. Well, driver I'm would sitting have done here it. now thinking about. So these are three different people probably three right? different, different people times? but i was totally all inside my head i was like this is an impossible test to pass because well, like especially that one where i did everything perfectly i just parallel parked a minivan within like six inches of the curb on the first try and you're gonna fail me because i made a left turn in front of somebody well i'm, I'm just wondering about the arlie ermy nature of the people doing this because like you would think that this is going to be a patty and selma type situation where they're like yeah whatever but like three different people were incredibly picky like does this attract it's somebody not, here, here's my theory it's yeah, not that they I, were incredibly picky. Like their their main job of the DMV and these poor, long suffering people who I would not want their job in a million years who have to like. And, and the thing is, though, John, as a side note, just think about like what you did was all pretty minor. That was a pretty B plus failure. <laughs> as it goes, can you imagine what they have to deal with? Like what right, they right. really have well, to deal so, with. But here's what I think they're actually doing in their job, which I should have been my clue from the first person who waved me off of the silly walking around the car thing. Right? Here's what they're looking for. They don't care how you drive. All they care is how nervous you look. Because what they want is someone who f- looks like they're comfortable driving. It's a, it's a void comp. That is, uh, yeah, that is all they want to know is, like, what does your confidence level look like? If you look super timid and are second-guessing yourself yeah. and questioning or whatever, that's uh, all they care about. And that's uh, why I failed. Yeah. So, like, in all the instances, well, the parallel parking, I just couldn't parallel park to the, you know, I didn't, whatever the measurement was, 18 inches, I just didn't get it. That is the only, like, legit failure. The other two were, I just looked indecisive when making turns. And by the third test, I was freaking, you know, so inside my own head about talking about indecisive. I was like overthinking everything i was like and so you could say they're like they're like punching you because you flinched basically you could say i failed for but again i feel like that's all they're looking for is like essentially does this person look calm cool and collected like they're a confident driver like they're an experienced driver that i would want on the road and it's a lot like kung fu i mean like you know uh, you had to keep your cool all the way down the uh, rice paper right and i think on the last one it was like after i had done everything perfectly I, I was probably, they, they could probably tell I was happy and like, oh, when this guy's happy and relaxed, he does something that's more reckless than I want him to do, fail, right? And they don't know that you failed it two other times. So that guy doesn't no. know he's failing me for the third time. He thinks this is the one that's going to teach him a lesson. I'm going to teach him. And it's like, no, you don't understand. This is my third time. Maybe I should have mentioned that at the beginning. This is my third. Maybe that is not a good opener. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, not a good opener. So that entire, I think it was that entire summer I spent not getting my license. And then on the fourth time, did everything perfectly. At that point, I think I was beaten down. I was I just fully expected to fail again, because I'm like, the third time, I did everything perfectly except for that left turn. Well, I won't do that part, but I'm sure they'll find something else to fail me. And so I think I just relaxed more, and it was more experienced. Parallel park the stupid minivan, three-point turn, all the turns are fine, pull in. And even as I pulled into the curb, I was like, all right, now tell me why I failed this time. And the guy's like, okay, you passed. Like, because they say everything in the same sort of dead monotone kind yeah, of... Yeah, of course. And like... I was like, yes, that was. Uh, so I feel like by the time I passed, I was a very experienced failure of driving test. I was a very experienced driver. Uh, of course, I was still a tel- terrible driver uh, at that point. Uh, I did all the the teenage reckless driving you could possibly imagine. Uh, the one of the most uh, vivid memories I have is driving a group of friends from school back to their houses or something in the minivan, four wheel drive minivan, in the pouring rain. 
uh, in a time in which one of the passengers of the car said, and Mike can bleep this, holy shit, we're going to hit that car. <laughs> at the top of his lungs, in the most honest uh, assessment of... His, you could hear every syllable. It's impending doom. He yelled, because he yelled it right in my ear. We did not hit that car. Uh-huh. But I was going way too fast and stopped mere inches from the bumper of that car that was stopped at a stoplight. Like, basically, I was driving the minivan as if it was a race car. Like, I, I knew the performance characteristics down. At the, and people, if you were driving with me, you would think there is no way in hell this minivan is going to stop in the every, rain. Every, every kid I knew as a teenager knew, knew that same thing. They knew exactly how my friend who drove the minivan, who drove the Toyota minivan when his, when his parents weren't around, like, he knew exactly how hard to push that. You, right. <laughs> right. Because you, you know how you know? Because you've driven like an idiot. Everywhere you possibly could. You've done donuts in parking lots. You've sped down all your residential roads. You've broken the speed limit on every single road. You've you've skidded the car in the rain. You've tried to drift it. You've put on the emergency brake. You've done everything you possibly can with a car. Of course you know the performance. But if you're a passenger, it's terrifying. Uh, I was, uh, you know, very... I was not taking care of that car <laughs> but, that way. But when you're 17, you feel... It's like Pacific Rim, and you're piloting a Jaeger. Like, you feel like you are so in touch with this vehicle, whatever that is. My friend with his Dodge Dart, like, you know, or, or driving driving the Toyota, or, like, me inside the pansy wagon. You feel like you insert yourself into this this little this little cinematic trailer about what you're doing. Like, you know what I mean? Do you remember that feeling of, like, oh, I could, I could, I could handle anything. Oh, in the right situation, I could get away, you know? It's that feeling, almost like the feeling of, like, I could win a fight if I had to. Like, I could do anything with this car if I had to. Yeah. And you'd be like, you, no, you... dude, you're driving it like a 15-year-old Dodge Dart. You're lucky that it hasn't just fallen off the road. Yeah, and, and you know, I had my full license at that point. I was 17 years old. I could drive right. at night. I could drive, I could drive my friends around who didn't have their licenses yet because they weren't old enough yet. I had erased the shame of failing the driving test three times, <laughs> most of which has happened over the summer. Uh, I was king of the world and I was a, uh, a, a fairly terrible, I mean, and really I say I was a fairly terrible, but I was nothing compared to some of my friends who had like nice cars or like old Mustangs and stuff like that. They were just maniacs. Like I wasn't dragging. Who gives racing. a teenager a sports car? What a they, terrible idea. They get idea. to buy them themselves. Those are the only American cars you really saw. You so Camaros and Mustangs. Were well, yeah, like, and yeah, and also a lot of a lot of people could afford a syringe and a bong. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. Like, who lets somebody have a Mustang? That's nuts. People who have older brothers, pe- people who had jobs from an earlier age than I did and saved their money and bought a used Mustang from some older yeah, kid or, who, or eventually... people whose dad. Like, I think about me and the like. My daughter will never feel privation feeling. Like, of course you can have these Shopkins. Like, there might have been that feeling of like, <laughs> oh, if my kid gets the Trans Am, like he'll he'll yeah. get to be cool. Hey, you can peel out in the parking lot. You get girls like it's all the same reason you know <laughs> high school kids have uh you know right and i congratulations son you're a dick yeah so, so the cars i had were not capable of that because we had i had a, a stick shift volvo wagon with 85 <laughs> horsepower i had a four-wheel drive minivan with automatic transmission that had the most you horsepower pop it, you pop it out of park you park you gotta pop it and then it, it, it uh, peels <laughs> out a little bit <laughs> Even in first gear, you cannot spin the tires in that car. It was not, it's like literally 85 horsepower, and it was not going anywhere. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com. You can enter that code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, at checkout, and that'll get you 10% off your first purchase. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you, because if it's worth the effort, it's worth sharing with the world. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands and takes away the pain points, stuff like worrying about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something. 
With Squarespace, you can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level. There is no coding nerdery required. You'll easily be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site that ensures security and stability. Squarespace are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Their site templates are just they are stunning to look at. They all feature responsive design, and that means they are going to look great on any device, regardless of size. This is just getting started. Squarespace has tons of great features. They have 24 by 7 support with live chat and email. Get uh, Squarespace's commerce platform, which allows you to add a store to your Squarespace site. They have this amazing cover page functionality. You can build great-looking single-page websites. So easy, so beautiful. Rock solid, fast hosting, and so much more. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you've got to check out their dev platform. This is what lets you dig right into the code with your own literal bare hands to tinker with your Squarespace site. If you sign up for a year of Squarespace, you'll also get a free domain name. That means you can name it whatever you want. Crazy part is Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month. I'm a huge fan of Squarespace. I have used them for years. I love them to death. Go please today. Start a free trial site with no credit card required. Start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please make sure to use our very special offer code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S. That will get you 10% off your first purchase and shows your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Yeah, and exceeded many speed limits. I, I know that the, the Honda Civic that we eventually got topped out around 106 going downhill with a tailwind. I know that the minivan could not break into the, the uh, over you 110. drove that car at over 100 miles an hour? You can find downhills on Sunrise Highway with the wind behind you. You can get almost any car up to a fairly amazingly high speed. <clears throat> no, it's not. I mean, like, if you're patient enough, any car can go fast if you got a hill. But, like, wow. But, like, it's it's almost like, you know, Blues Brothers, right? You know what I mean? Like, cop engine, cop brakes, cop suspension. Like, cars that don't get fast quickly... Like they don't, they don't, have, they don't of, have enough downforce. They start. But they don't have the, the systems are not in place for dealing with the contingency. Yeah, so the Volvo, the Volvo speedometer stopped at eighty-five miles an hour. Yeah, so you, they can all liter- did. you can yeah. literally bounce the needle off of the little pin at the end there, and then after wow. that, you had no idea how fast you were going. So <sighs> yeah, so this, all, all this tomfoolery with cars, which you should never do, is leading up to the thing that made me the driver I am today. Which is a series of accidents. And oh, no. We're going to talk about that for, I think that's what we had in the car section of your thing, too. So, let me Well, think. We're, we're running a, a little bit long, but yeah, I want to hear about your accidents. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, you, can, you can sum them up pretty briefly and then you can do yours as well. So, the first one uh, was. I don't want to do mine. Ooh. I don't want to do mine. Well, we're going to get to it eventually. Uh. If we don't, I'll just save it in the reserve. The first, the first one for me was when I had my permit. I'm in the driver's seat. My mom is in the passenger seat. We're driving the Volvo wagon down Jericho Turnpike. And it's pretty much uh, no one else on the road. But up ahead of me, I see something. I'm not quite sure what it is because, again, I'm an inexperienced driver. I have no idea what's going on. Turns out to be an aluminum extension ladder. You know those double extension ladders? You know, yeah. you sl- like one on, side like past. Like on a workman's truck. Yeah, one, sli- one side slides past the other to get to extend out farther. Like a La- telescoping yeah. thing. Yeah. Laying down on the road in front of me across two lanes. And uh, this is a 55-mile-an-hour like highway. And, you know, it's it's a gray ladder, and it's a fairly gray road. So by the time I see it... I stop, uh, very short, uh, no anti-lock brakes or anything like that, mostly not skidding, but I stop in time. The car behind me does not stop in time. The car behind me is not paying enough attention, is following too closely, ends up hitting the rear bumper of the car. My mother 
quickly tells me to swap seats with her to pretend that she was driving for insurance purposes, which we do. <laughs> wow. Which we do very quickly in the front seat before the person comes out. Uh, Good for that- her. Yes. Wow, and- she's like somebody from the Americans. Like, man, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that accident, not my fault, uh, but it was my first, you know, car hitting other cars. <laughs> I'm a society. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I was fairly shaken up by it, but like, you know, I stopped in time and, and the car behind me didn't. And, you know, that, the insurance dealt with that and pretended my mom was driving. Well, that, that always, I mean, like, I, I know that that is not a, that is neither a saw nor a cliche that is always true. But generally speaking, the person who hits from behind loses. Yeah. And, and in New York, I think that the rules don't really care about much whose fault it is anyway. But they do care if it's a 16-year-old with Lawrence permit driving probably. Um, right. Even though it was daytime and I was properly supervised and everything. Second one was uh, I was on my way back from uh, tennis lessons. I didn't mention that I taught tennis lessons at some point. You taught tennis? Yes. I played tennis in, uh, in high school. Layers of an onion. Yeah. Um, and I'm coming back from the tennis place. It was indoor tennis place. It's winter. Um, Coming back, it had snowed while I was inside. I had the minivan. The minivan has four-wheel drive. There's a little curving drive coming out of the tennis place. Of course, I am trying to four-wheel drift on this curve. <laughs> uh, drifted a little bit too much and hit the uh, left front wheel into the side of a very high curb as I, you know, around the curve uh, oh, and bent, bent a suspension piece. Rode home, drove home with the bent suspension piece with the car pulling you know, to the side the whole time with me having to counter steer to make it up there. Uh, that was totally my fault. No one else was on the road. It was snowing. I was driving badly. I skidded. Um, some money that cost money to fix. That was bad. Uh, I don't. So it was a non. That's a very interesting accident. So it was mostly just drivable damage to the car that just needed repairs. But like it was a single person, single yeah, vehicle no, accident. No, the cars there. Everyone, it was fresh snow. Like I was, yeah, it's a curve. I was going around a curve, but the, the car was sliding because it was snowy and it kept sliding. And instead of tucking around the curve, it slid too much and hit the curb. And it happened to be like one of those very high curbs that like went up above like the midpoint of the Ugh. wheel, so the wheel went against it and bent. And yeah, you know, I had one of those. Yeah, um, that was totally my fault. But uh, and it probably cost uh, a lot of money. Uh, but my parents didn't make me pay for it. Uh, and I was just told to be more careful or whatever. Um, the third one was the one that really counted. Uh, this this one is a confluence of very bad and, and very good things, right? So I was driving home at midnight, from after midnight, from Easter Vigil Mass, which, of course, you know, I went to, we went to church every Sunday, in, you know, for my whole uh, life until I left home, basically. Um, and we went to Easter Vigil Mass, which is a, a midnight mass. I was driving home in the minivan by myself because we had multiple cars there and I didn't want to stay anyway. It was late at night and I didn't want to be at church anyway, so I was going to go home myself. Um, uh, making a left turn basically on the road that goes past my high school. So I'm like, my high school is in sight. It's, in, it's you know, to, to forward and to my left. I'm making a left turn onto a road that I made a left turn onto. About a million times because, you know, I drive, uh, drove to and yes. from school, right? It's nighttime. I make the left turn and I look at, you know, the A pillar is on the car, the little, the, the things that, that hold, they're on the side of the windshield. The windshield is in between. Uh, Cars the- have A pillar, B pillar, and C pillar. The A pillars are the ones that go from the hood of the car up to the roof. Okay. It's just a big metal frame. Okay, yeah, I think I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So I'm making a left turn. So basically the right-hand A pillar 
you know, if I was to turn, look and look straight down the road. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, down. of course. It's the thing that holds up the roof. <laughs> yes, yes. 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 So I'm making the left turn. I'm crossing over to make the left turn. And then I look at the, the oncoming traffic lane. And what I see are the headlights of another car, one of which is to the left of the A-pillar. Oh, no. And one of which no, is no. to the right of the A-pillar. And that, what? It, that is a bad sign because oh, when, that's the car, a very bad sign. when the car is that close and it's in the oncoming lane and it is not stopped, you are going to get hit. Uh, so that car hit my car pretty much head like, on almost head on because i was i was oh at maybe a 45 God. degree angle and they were going straight as far as i could tell they never hit the brakes i did not see them at all until i glanced back and saw their headlights straddling the a-pillar which again it's a very bad sign um totally my fault i basically made a left turn right in front of them i had no recollection of seeing them at all until i saw their headlights around the a-pillar uh, they were like a small little Toyota type thing. They had airbags. Their airbags went off. My airbags did not go off. I was fine. Um, I mean, I just got jostled in my, again, it was like a 30 mile an hour road. It's not a very high speed type of thing. My car wasn't going particularly fast. It was up much higher than theirs. Their car was totaled. Um, and ambulances came and fire oh, trucks no. came and oh, the whole nine no. yards and they were they were injured. I think someone broke his leg and their car was just totally all messed up. Our car was fairly messed up. Didn't get totaled, but almost. Um, and then the insurance companies were at war over that whole thing where they had they were trying to sue to get more money of the insurance companies for, you know, their injuries and, and it was totally my fault like again you know, there's no there's no contesting whose fault the accident was it was right, clear right, right. as day but there was all sorts of depositions and stuff like that and like the 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 probably the biggest saving grace is the whole like the opposing attorney and you know, whatever the opposing insurance companies were all about the idea that i was a, a teen out partying late at night when in reality i was coming home from church a church service that you know only the the fairly devout religious people would go to did not drink was not you, drunk you were at late did, church <laughs> did, yeah didn't do wasn't a kid who did drugs didn't really drink at all certainly wasn't drinking that night wasn't in a car with a bunch of friends wasn't partying anything like that it was just like what it came down to is you made a mistake because you were a young inexperienced driver who was driving really late at night when you were tired that's all it came down to um and I felt terrible for it. I felt terrible about it. It was because it got drawn out, because it involved lawyers and depositions and, and all this other business, that it was a very significant event in my life. And Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, and I guess, how, what age was I then? 17 or 18? Pretty early on in my in my driving life. Um, and so, yeah, that had... And remember, that's after the ladder, the, the snow curb, and now this thing, all in fairly rapid succession. Um, so that, I think those experiences kind of shaped me as a driver. Now, you know, I am 41 years old and I have not had an accident since uh, that day. I am so conservative when I drive. Like the, the whole idea of like the way that I drove when I was 19 in the pansy wagon is just appalling to me today. Cause like in our neighborhood, we live in a neighborhood that's a very, like very Western part of town. It's a total grid. Um, it's a lot of four way stops, the occasional two way stops, like just enough to be super con- confusing. And everybody, like, you know, kind of California glides through them. But, like, I, I, it, and it scares me. Every time I have to drive and, like, stop the car at a stop sign, I really feel like, like, this could be it, you know? It's because you know what the mind, and I, I honestly, I'm not trying to sound unkind or condescending, but, like, you know how unformed the middle brain of a teenager is. They are incapable of having that kind of judgment. Like, we can't even fault them. I mean, they're just, they've got problems. 
But like the way that I would drive back then was so – I would just drive as fast as I possibly could in every situation and take almost every chance that I could take. And like what you're describing though with like the way you choked a little bit on the driving test and what happened on that ill-fated night, it's like – you know, today, I feel like I, I would be fine. I'm not fine, but like I would not get into those situations as often. And if I were in that situation, I wouldn't panic. But like that's the problem is like you, you panic. It's what you, you do crazy stuff at that age and there's no way to stop it. So that, that explains the driving test. But the other one, the accident, the big – and you know, so the latter I feel like was successful. Like I used what I had learned to do the correct thing in the situation, stop the car in time. And it was just the car behind me that had messed up. The, the snow was – trying to have fun in a car and not really knowing what the limits I had not yet completely learned the limits, especially in snow, which was a more novel situation on Long Island than other than rain or other things. I hadn't learned the limits right, of that right. car and I learned them in a way that was, that caused damage to the car. But the other one was just plain inattention driver inexperience, not realizing that really literally every single time you make a left turn, you have to actually look with your eyeballs and make sure there are no cars in the oncoming line. Even if it's, you know, 1am and you haven't seen a car on the road for the past five minutes. Yeah. But remember that seat, remember that seat pillar and, and and you're coming home and you're coming home from church like yes even then you actually have to check the oncoming lane to see if there are cars there and it kind of like I, I forget where i was talking about this maybe i was talking about it in person with people uh cutting yourself with kitchen knives right it always fascinates me to meet adults who routinely cut themselves with kitchen knives um because i feel like cutting yourself especially with kitchen knives if you spend any time in the kitchen like and you learn how to cook and you learn how to use various kitchen knives to do basic skills you're going to cut yourself everybody does it's how you yeah. learn how not to cut yourself is you cut yourself in every way that you can you learn don't do that again don't cut yourself towards yourself like this don't cut away from yourself like that when you're doing this pay attention uh don't put your fingers like this don't do that right i cut myself a million times with every kind of knife you can imagine bread knives chef knives paring knives cut 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 all over my fingers all the time right eventually by the time i was like 16 or 17 I'd cut myself every way you could cut yourself with kitchen knives. Uh, and I stopped cutting myself with a kitchen knife. I no longer, I haven't cut myself with a kitchen knife in, I don't know, 30 something years. Right. But the only right. way I could get to that point in the same way that I haven't, you know, gotten to an accident in 30 something years is to have cut myself a whole bunch of times. And it just so happens that I was unlucky enough to learn the lesson of, Oh, you actually have to check the oncoming lane every single time. Like learn the, the meta lesson of, pay attention when you're driving no seriously you actually have to pay attention you are not protected by an invisible barrier that that keeps you safe because you're a teenager right you actually have to pay attention i learned that in it could have been worse right but it also could have been better because with the kitchen knives things so what you cut yourself a bunch of times you put out a bunch of band-aids some of them bleed for a long time never really had to get stitches or anything but that's how you learn right so i feel like with driving is there a way to learn there's there's a, there's really not because there has to be something like you know, something very different from the Dragon's Lair thing that you're describing where you have like a, you know, a carnival wheel that just spins loosely and a movie that you watch. Like there has to be some kind of stake in it. It's and but but it's also just it's just also the number of times like not to be too big a pivot, but also think about like how differently you think about human relationships, like the extremity of how you think about human relationships when you're young versus as you get older. And there's so many more things that to me like – 30 years of pseudo-adult relationships has left me where I go like, yeah, people are weird. You got to watch out for that. Like, whereas at the time, like everything was this, this giant, giant, giant thing. You've got to put miles on the tires to be able to even know these things. But, you know, but even what you're describing, like, and this does go back kind of to driver's ed, is like, it's hard to know how much of that 
is just dumb bullshit from grownups and how much of it is something that's actually incredibly useful. You know what I mean? Like to this day, I'm, I'm thinking of some of those tricks, like the trick of how to parallel park by when you are backing up, start cutting really hard when your passenger side rear view mirror is about even with the end of the car in front. <laughs> All those rules are so predicated on the particular proportions of cars uh, no, at the time they were made, and now cars are so weirdly proportioned, those rules are entirely wrong. Yes, but, yes, but, I still say to this day, almost everybody who screws up at parallel parking, the, re- the first reason they screwed up is because they didn't realize how hard to do the first cut, right? It almost always happens because you go, uh, 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 I'm going to shimmy in. No, you're going to do two super dramatic turns here womp womp back fix cars right? do that automatically for you now by the way yeah i've heard about that i didn't get a vote on that <laughs> or for example here's one let me ask you this and I, I don't mean to change from the subject of your car tragedy but for example like when you are on a highway and you're going you know 52 miles an hour on the highway and you want to change from the middle lane to the left lane um, I don't, I don't want to make it a trick question involving vision mirrors at all. Like what do you do to determine when it's safe to go into the left lane? So the way I have my mirrors adjusted, which I believe is the way they recommend to probably even drive red these days is the rear view mirror. The one that's stuck to the middle of the windshield, right? Just, just barely kisses the edge of the back of the car. So that is, is covering my rear view, uh, and the, I think the mistake people make is, I mean, as I have a fairly good visibility out of the back, is they don't realize the extent to which that really wide mirror covers their field of vision. And so what they end up doing with their side view mirror is is, is tucking them in too yeah, close. They pointed at, they po- yeah, exactly. They pointed at the fender. Right. If, if, you, if you can see your car in your side view mirror, it's tucked in. Do it so that you can confidently see, like, where the back of, a few inches of the back of your car but you mostly want to cover the stuff that you can't see. By no, I don't, back. I don't co- have any of my car in the mirror because the rear view mirror covers the field of vision. And so I have yes. the side view mirrors. Like if you, if you look at the views out of them, I just want them to barely intersect. So my side view mirrors are pushed way out. And you would say like, people don't feel, feel comfortable. It's like, oh, I don't, but I can't see where my car is in that. And now I don't know where I am. Yeah, that's right. You know where your, your rear, car is? It's where you're driving. Yeah, <laughs> your rear view can see that. So anyway. Right, right, right. You've got to check your rear and side to make sure it's clear, but you have to actually physically turn your head every single time you turn the lane. It changed lanes. I, I didn't get into an accident changing lanes, but I learned that. I have never loved you so much as I love you right now. You have to, because you, I mean, there's a thing called the blind spot and you can learn all about it, but the bottom line is you have to physically turn your, and when you do turn your head, the turning of your head does not make you safe. When no. you turn your head, you have to use your eyeballs to look and register what it is you see with the no, brain. No, there's part another of layer. Body. There's a whole another layer. Oh, god damn it! Yes, for, well, yes, you have to like determine when it is safe to be able to do that. That takes you use basically all of the mirrors. Like this is just me, and I I am apparently the only person in my family or friendship that, that feels this way. But like your mirrors are there to let you know when it's safe to look back. Right, but you and that's but you got to look back. You have to physically turn your head and look. And it's like the same thing I tell my kids when they cross the street. Turning your head doesn't keep you safe. You have to look. And so I ask them, what cars did you see down there? If you if you say, oh, I don't know. Oh. You have to. You have mm. to <laughs> how many cars were there? What color were there? You have to look with your eyeballs. Turning your head does not keep you safe. Because I see so many people who turn their head and their eyeballs are like off into the distance or they're right. like, who knows? Like, they're just glazed over. But I mean, they, they see look. in the same way that like spinning a telescope is seeing. Right. Like, you know, actually, don't just, don't just. 
look like, I'll register see. what it is you see how far away is the car how fast is it going what color is the car does the does the driver in that car see you at all i mean and the thing is like it's a, and again i never got into an accident changing lanes so like, this is like the, the one larger lesson of that one time you didn't pay attention that one time well, you didn't you're do doing the thing. it right you're doing it right. right and so like the turning your head thing to this day very often I check all the mirrors, I turn my head, and you know, you've been driving for a long time, you've been driving 30-something years with no accident, you turn your head, while you turn your head, you think about starting to make the turn, and then you turn your head and you see, oh my god, there's a, you know... Motorcycle, there's a motorcycle. There, there, or yeah. There's some sports car coming up at a million miles an hour. Yep. And and then I think, I said, that's why you turn your head. And every time that happens, it reinforces ah. the notion that like, it, it's one out of every thousand times, but it happens and you realize, you know what, if you hadn't turned your head, you would just turn right into the lane in front of that person because you didn't see them in your mirrors, uh, because they were too far away when you checked your mirrors. By the time you turned into that lane, that, that too late. Porsche 911 going, you know, 98 miles an hour would have rammed into you and would have been a terrible accident. So good thing you turned your head. And this is why, thank you, and this is why it is galling to me, because not only do, do I generate a laugh when I do that, when I look over over my shoulder to see what's in the other lane. Not only do I get ridiculed because I'm an old man who's doing that, but I am frequently told by people that that is an unsafe thing to do. You should always keep your eyes on the mirrors. No. And I was like, who no, says, don't who says keep that. Who's saying this? People in life I have <sighs> met. No, the mirrors are the mirrors are the, the mirrors are a hint. The mirrors are like an auger. The mirrors are a way to give you a generalized sense of information that you can use to like cobble together in different ways. But like use your goddamn eyes to see where you are pointing the prow of this giant vehicle. Yeah. And the thing is, you the reason you have to have the mirrors is because you only get like you shouldn't be like staring backwards. You get a chance. You get to look back and see what it's like. And if you look back, you have like a fractions of a second to make an assessment. Then you've got to look forward again. You may have to turn your head seven times to get into that lane if it's high speed or whatever, because while you're turning your head, but your friends are trying to say is maybe that car in front of you just jammed on his brakes because there's a ladder on the road. So you uh, need to get back to looking at the car in front of you as fast as possible. So very yep. often you are turning back and turning, especially if you're on a high speed road, especially if you have a, a short following distance or whatever. Lots of head turning, and you have to, if you're good at it, you have to be able to turn your head, make an assessment, and turn back whether it's a go no go. And if it's if it's a no go, you're going to have to turn your head again and again and again until you. I feel like this is old fashioned, John. I feel like that th- this approach. That's how you don't hit other cars. It's not. I old completely <laughs> agree, and I, I like I've never agreed with you so much about something because like it's it's but it's funny though because there are people in in the modern car, and I'm not even talking about the modern car that like does stuff for you but like for the last like 20 30 years people have gotten this idea that like you know whatever i can see through the windshield and these these mirrors is going to be my guide and it's like no i still i want to sh- i want to shut that off and like i want to see the trench for myself no you always have to i mean they have all these these things about like lane departure warnings and blind spot detection these blind spot detectors like the blind spot detectors you have to turn your head i mean like it's more difficult than cars with with worse visibility because sometimes you physically literally cannot see like in a fancy sports car there are situations where the C like, pillar, yeah, like where there's a very bad visibility out the back, and the side view mirrors are way out far, and you could they're trying to give you a view around the back of your giant car. But the bottom line is, like, you'd have to stick your head out the window, and like in those cars, I mean, I've driven trucks and everything too, the same type of thing. You have no rear view in a truck; you've just got your side view mirrors, and you've got the double side view mirror with the you know this comes from the driving the trucks to the parks. Oh, like, you, you mean like, like renting renting a U-Haul? Yeah, you got the little curved mirrors and stuff like that. Ugh. In that case. You're still turning your head to make sure there's not like a, you know a, a Volkswagen Jetta like down in your lower blind spot that you're about to push off the road because you don't realize they're literally right next to you and you don't see them because you're looking in your mirrors down the road you know so it's it depends on what car you're driving but there's always something you can be doing to check and it goes for you know for any type of motion with the car like 
the you know it's it's the last stage in the process all the earlier stages is about mirrors and thinking about where you're planning ahead and doing whatever whatever you if you think it's a hundred percent go situation you still have to look where you're going and make that one last check because every time i see oh there's something i didn't see there it just keeps reinforcing the notion that's exactly what you have to do if you never do it you're never going to get that reinforcement and you're going to end up getting into an accident We should uh, start a charity. I think we could help a lot of people. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm already ridiculous. I'm already dreading trying to teach my children how to drive because what I, I just said, didn't like, want to ask. I was I didn't want to ask, but like your son, he's getting up there. Yeah, but like what I think about is like, is it even possible? Is it even possible to learn without getting into it? Like it's the only the only model I have is you're going to be a terrible reckless driver until you get into a terrible accident. It's your fault, and then you'll learn for the rest of your life. Is that the only model that works? I mean, apparently not. Well, People could, you, never... could you handle passing that off to somebody else that you trust? Uh, I mean, the thing is, you don't know because you would be you would you would like. be terrible at that. Like you would what? drive yourself and him crazy. No, I, I mean, I think I would do. I, I think I have a lot of important lessons to impart. I think about them <laughs> now when I'm in the car. Was when when my son asked me questions about driving. Here's here's one for the kids listening who are yeah. There's there's five people who don't for have all the uh, the young people. Yeah, yeah. Um, very often you'll find yourself in a situation where you are trying to turn onto a road or something that is a very busy road, and you're stationary and you're waiting for your spot to go onto the very busy road. Um, and it, you know, it's rush hour or whatever. And there are people stacking up behind you because you're waiting for your spot to go into the road. The people behind you may have an opinion about when they think it was safe for you to go. The person directly behind you may honk if he or she sees what he or she thinks is a spot that you could have turned into, but chose not to. When that person honks, the human instinct is to be like, oh, you are dissatisfied with my driving you want me to go, suddenly there is an urgency to go. Right. You need to fight that instinct because... That's a terrible right. instinct. If you, ha- if you have that feeling and you take that opportunity to go at a time when you wouldn't normally have because the person behind you honked and you get into an accident, right. when the police officer asks you or the lawyer asks you or, or, or whatever why you went, try explaining to them, the guy behind me was really impatient and honked, so I thought I should go. <laughs> doesn't really hold a lot of water. It's like, yeah, there, that there is no, there's no Nuremberg defense for driving. They're not driving your car. You're driving your car. This is the one that gets me into the most trouble with the stupid parking garage at work. They have people with little, like, orange flashy cone things trying to direct traffic to say, everyone out of the parking garage. Now pedestrians go. Now you go trying oh, to coordinate. Right? And those people. When they say, all right, come on, out, come out of the parking garage, go, 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 make a left turn of the parking garage, go, they want don't, you to don't, go, don't go, Don't think, go. Don't, don't think, don't, don't judge, right. just follow my cones, just right. follow and, me. And then when I come out and they want me to make a left turn onto this road, I don't go just because they're waving the cones. Never. I, lo- I stop and look to see if there's oncoming traffic before that I make exactly a left turn That is exactly the, the time lane. to redouble your effort to say, no, sir, I will make my own reckon of this. I will do my, I will reconnoiter this rim and I will decide, nobody but me decides when it is time to expose myself and, and, to traffic. And the reason is, if you went out there and ended up ramming a car or a car T-boned you or something, is your explanation going to be the guy with the wavy cones, <laughs> wavy flashlight things told me I could, I should go? That I is not just, a strong just defense. Just following orders. That is not a strong defense. The guy told me, uh, whether he's a police officer, and believe me, people at work honking me for not going. And the guy with the wavy cones is super angry that I'm stopping. I'm like, hey, you're not the one who's going to 
get their car rammed into or run over a child or something. That's me. I'm going to be the one to do that. So I decide where this giant multi-thousand dollar piece of metal goes, not you. And so people do get angry at me. And that is, I think, an important skill to impart on your children. Accept their anger because their anger will not be a comforting excuse when you, you know, get hit or run over something. We see it downtown. We see it, well, we see it in our neighborhood, but we really see it downtown. So you think about like that Koyanaskatsi like fast motion version of like do 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 bugga 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 like are we the are only people who get that reference so we were forced to see that movie i love that movie <laughs> all right anyway everyone else look it up future is coming too soon but if you think about like the whole like okay let's do super fast motion you see like oh there's an ebb and flow that seems super sensible right suddenly the light changes and a bunch of cars go and a you know similar number of pedestrians cross on the green when they can. It starts to seem really, really like you see like oh my gosh, there's this like uh, there's this heartbeat to the city and how it moves. You know what? Ignore that heartbeat because if you're in San Francisco, you're walking down Market Street, you get to Fourth, and so boop boop boop, it turns red, you stop. So a bunch of people are standing there waiting for the light to change. There will be people who ignore that signal and just start walking whenever. There'll be a couple of those people. There'll be a large number of people who are like, hey, look at me. I'm Johnny downtown. I've anticipated the signal, and I know when it's safe to start walking, right? You've seen this in your city or other cities. And what I said to my daughter is ignore all of these people. Like, blot them out of your mind. Yes, look at the signal to know if it's safe to cross, but you reconnoiter your own rim. Like, walk around. Like, do like a... Not a 360, but like do it like a 270 scan because there will be a cab coming out of somewhere at some point that you have no way – like what are you going to do, sue them later? No. You have to like scan the entire horizon. You cross when you know it's ready. Like you do left, right, left, and you cross when you think it's ready. Never follow anybody else's uh, heartbeat-like desire to to move quickly across the street. You realize the, the – I tell my kids the same thing and I realize like the utter futility of like when – like, because here's the thing with walking across the streets, they may totally agree with you intellectually. They may do exactly what you want. Uh, you may give them a test where they go off on their own and you watch them do it and they do exactly the way that you taught them to do it. And they're like totally careful and totally alert and being on top of things. The second they get into a group of their friends uh, and when they get to a certain age and they're with a group of their friends and the group of the friends start crossing the street, guess what? They're all crossing the street. Everything you've taught your child will go out the window because when she is 16-year-old and hang out with a bunch of her friends, there is no way in hell she is going to sit there while the rest of them go across the street laughing and talking, and she's going to stay there and decide when it's safe for her to go. I reject that cognitive error um, just because the situation will come up where she does something dumb does not mean that she shouldn't, in her heart, know the right thing from practice. No, no, I, I totally agree. I'm saying, like, why you, you think, like, no matter how well you teach them, there are forces that are going to be more powerful than, you know, obviously, well, yes. The, the whole point is that you are instilling that in her heart of hearts, as she has run over, she will know what the right thing to have done was. But, like, that there, are, that there are forces that come into, you know, teenage children's lives that just swamp, you know, all reason, right? And it, and it's depressing to think about the fact that, you know, no matter what, how good a job you do, you're powerless against. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But I mean, like, for example, like that cadence I just described, like left, right, left, like that's, that is a series of sounds that go through my own head. I don't know where I got it from, but left, right, left, it goes through my head every time I walk up. So I do left, right, left plus a little, little extra because I will do the, the, the higher level scan. Anyway, whatever I'm trying to say is like, there's no way I can save my kid from being dumb. Like, because kids are dumb. That's their job to be dumb. It's my job to try to give them enough little, like, st- sticky 
index card-ish ideas that might pop up when it's useful that like plus or minus 80% she'll be okay. That's all I can do. I can't I can't prevent her from being yeah. dumb. I mean what I, what I'm trying to do now with the, the idea with the people honking behind you and stuff is to give like to give the worst case scenario and to and to rehearse the worst case scenario is that we tell them like for example you're going to be with a group of friends and they're going to want to cross the street and there's <laughs> no that's way useless. that, you, that and, is and, useless and there's no way you're going to want to stay back because if you do stay back you're going to look wimpy and you're going to look weird and people are they're going to laugh at you and it's going to be weird and you're just going to want to say nothing and do exactly what they're doing um, I can't decide if you're Chris Cooper in um, American Beauty or Carrie's mom. No, no, no. I mean, this is this is this is what you have to do because if you don't talk about these scenarios and they they occur organically, they right. won't have a frame of reference. Whereas then, when at least it happens, they'll be like, "Oh, this is one of the situations my dad was telling you about," and they'll still ignore your advice. But at least they will. Have, at least I know what I'm. Maybe they're up. they're all you're looking for is for their awareness to be slightly heightened at that particular moment to be like, oh, "This is that thing they were talking about right there." Or the driving one, I think you can't you can't stick because I think people do realize the consequences of that. But anything involving like peer pressure, it's the same reason we were taught all our lives. And this is not the show where we're talking about drugs. To all our lives. Someone's going to offer you a drug. Someone's going to offer you a drink. You know, someone's going to do this. They're going to try to pressure you in this way. And we did role playing for those the pressures, you know, whatever. And it doesn't mean you're going to listen to them and do what they say, right? But at the very least, you're going to recognize the situation, and something's a light, tiny little light bulb's going to go off in yep. in your giant hormone-addled brain, and at least you'll be for a moment have a moment of of clarity and be like. This is one of those situations they were telling us about. And that moment of that extra moment, that little tiny pause you're hoping will be enough to save somebody's life. <laughs> you know, and that will that maybe you're walking with you're across with a group of friends when you shouldn't have, but you're the one who turned their head and saw the oncoming car and yelled and, and you know, you know what I mean? Like that's that's <sighs> yeah. what you're looking for. God willing. No, parenting is, is a nightmare. Terrible. Just <laughs> like, don't do it. It's, don't like, do it's it. amazing we, we live to adulthood now and you, you you don't even have time to celebrate that achievement before you realize now you have a new impossible task <laughs> to try to keep another human being alive and you know how dumb they're gonna be. Uh, no, I, it's yeah, I um I, I I had a whole life as a horrible person and now I, I deserve all of this. It's this is it, this is my albatross. You don't t- so sweet you can squeeze in your accident. There's time. You can do it. I, uh, I uh, no <laughs> mine are too sad. They're too sad. Oh, well, too sad. It's. I'm just going to leave it in there. You can decide. All you, right. You talked wrecked, about your favorite I job ever. My, I right? wrecked my girlfriend's beloved truck in college because I I braked. Is that the right term? Braked. You I broke say it. Broke. I broke. <laughs> yes, Ed. you braked. Yes. I broke. I, I broke Ed to avoid hitting an animal that was running uh, across uh, I-75. Then you got rear-ended. No, we spun off the road in the rain. And I and I ruined her truck that she loved. What kind of animal was it? I think it was a cat. <laughs> Some, it's a freaking possum, <laughs> cat. You, you like to think it was a cute animal, it was, but really, it was, it was one of those skittish, and it doubled back. And I was like, <laughs> I think we're listening to Van Morrison. What kind of oh, truck what was a it? Story. God. And I, and she she taught me stick shift on the same truck and I wrecked it and I became a piece of literature. What well, what kind of truck was it? A pickup truck? Yeah, it was like a Ranger. Yeah, those things. Yeah. No, but she no, was no. from you know she was uh she was part of the uh, her father uh, worked at McCormick and she was part of uh, Big Spice and so her dad had <laughs> had she uh, she might have bought it herself she was very independent she was super cool and uh, yeah so she she bought this truck and. Uh, no weight on the back wheels, man. Uh, I was a bad boyfriend. Hydroplane. Terrible boyfriend. Well, I mean, that's, that's a, as far as accidents go, you were trying to do something noble. Yeah. 
right? And no anti-lock that, that was a hard one to bring back into the harbor, though. Like I had, I had, I had really, I had did she, really. Did she blame you for that? Did she say you shouldn't? You should just run over the animal. You broke my car. It's... Yeah, John, that's what she said. That's what she said. My 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 vegan botanist girlfriend. Well, then, so what are you all worried about? You just you just felt no, guilty. No, but I like I my I just it was you know what it was a it was a it was a it was a dark sign. Like obviously, I was a bad person. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like a Voldemort skull, skull up in the sky. Like, obviously, I was a bad person. But how are you getting bad press that? You tried to do something good. <sighs> you know, we talked about this before, exposing the seams. That just exposed the seams. Mm. And then we slept at somebody's house, and they were in Gainesville, and they were Christian, and they were really <laughs> nice. They, they took us off the road, but I'd ruined her brown truck, and I will never live it down. <sighs> she spoke, she, she, she uh, spoke French. You, you have the most interesting girlfriends. You, and- I've had, I've had a lot of extremely interesting girlfriends. Yeah, she, she, she uh, turned me on to uh, Van Morrison. <laughs> of course, she did. Yeah, <laughs> that's what your vegan girlfriend tells you about. Goddamn cat! <laughs> not, I guarantee you. I guarantee it was not a cat. Well, no, it was like something it was a like Damon Lindelof crash. Like I don't even remember what it was. All I know is that it was wrong. It was dead wrong, and it was like no. I did it all wrong. You know what? Also, you know what else? Like, she taught me to drive on her. Oh, God, this is so painful. She taught me to drive on her truck, but you know what else she could do? She could do three on a tree. She picked up three on a tree. She's a 19 year old woman going to college in, in a different state than she grew up in, and she picked up three on a tree. I have, did you no, ever idea. Learn I have three? no idea what that is. That is, so imagine PRNDL2, mm-hmm. but imagine that being a manual on the steering column. Yeah. Oh, oh, just that's what you call three on a tree. Instead of four on the floor, you got three on the tree. No, I have never heard that expression. Yeah, a column shifted uh, manual transmission. Yep. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm John Syracuse. No, did you ever learn that? No, and I, I'm aware of them, but it I've seemed never way one. harder than like uh, usual uh, shifting. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, we um, oh, we did terrible things at her house. Her dad worked at McCormick. He gave me spices. This is the beginning of your... Uh, she was a wonderful, wonderful person. Gosh, rela- she was such a great person. Your relationship with spices. So is that it for your accident? You avoided hitting an animal and that's, wrecked that's, the car? <laughs> you know what? That's all I'm ready for tonight. I've got other ones. I um I flipped a car uh, listening to The Long Run by the Eagles. I flipped a car and drove it home. That sounds like your fault. It was so my fault. Me and the curb. High five. <laughs> What car was this? When you were telling my Mazda, when my, my um, 424, Mazda Protégé, it was called. Yeah, I know the Protégé. No, no, I, 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 just, I, just, I just don't know. The, I'm just, Shelly, <laughs> if you're out there, I'm so sorry about your truck. <laughs> oh, God, I'm covered with shame. No, but that one was totally like, this is like when you were describing your, which, whichever your accident was with the curb. Yep. Where I was like, you know. This is and it's the worst. It was it's this is the worst. This is the like this is like um um like like uh is it Matt Jameson, Matt and Mary in the leftovers? What's his name? What's the what's Doctor Who in the in the in the uh, leftovers? Uh yeah, I think it's Matt. You have the same day over and over. You have the same day over and over. Exactly the same. We brush the teeth, we listen to this song, we do this. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had taken the 87 degree angle of this street almost every day since I had moved there. Like seven years of driving this one way, taking this turn, coming back, 
taking this turn over and over and over. It was it was a total Groundhog Day, like uh, Matt Jamison situation. And just the tiniest little bit of my right front wheel hit the curb. That's all it took. How fast were you going? <laughs> fast enough to flip my car. Yeah. yeah. I was, like when I hit the curb, I was going like 25 miles an hour. But then I drove it home. How did it, was, was it okay after that? It was not okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I will never hear the long run the same again. The car flipped, landed on the wheels. You were were belted in, I assume? Oh, totally. And I was like, (laughs) I just flipped my car. And I'm sitting here. Um, (laughs) Drove to the house. Which is, of course, like three blocks away because it was literally a street that I drove down all the time. Yep. No, it was weird because like – and then for a little while, I like I lived in a little like uh, Marquez Borges story. I had my own little Borges story where I, I had a completely crushed car parked in front of my house for months. <laughs> I was like, I can fix this. I can totally fix this. Did you do the thing after my big accident? Did you do the thing where you checked your body to see that you weren't injured because you know that after accidents you might be in shock and might not realize that you've yeah. broken something? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, there's that thing where, like, and it, it's, it, it is totally something from, like, a, like a sci-fi TV show where, you, where you're, like, you're thinking, like, that turned out better than it should have. Either I'm dead and now in an alternate Right, universe. internal injuries, I'm bleeding out internally. I don't realize right. it to have right. actually well, the obvious, broken a bone. The obvious example is external bleeding. Like, am I, am I bleeding? Yeah. I remember that there were some peculiar smells. I remember, like, literally the song. No, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, Long Rain. It was Heartache Tonight. Yeah. Heartache <laughs> Tonight was playing. And when I turned over the car, I just flipped a Japanese car. Uh, and uh, Heartache Tonight came back on. And then, with, like, parts of it dragging. I drove it back to my house. You didn't have any injuries at all? I don't think I had. I had fewer injuries than like playing with my daughter. Like I was <laughs> like my daughter and I were, were were like horsing around and doing lots of tickling and silly stuff. I had more injuries tonight from playing with my daughter than I had from flipping my car. Now, now you're old. Getting up too quickly can cause injuries. I have dreams about being injured. I have, I have dreams about moving too quickly and pulling something. <laughs> yeah, I, but it was a completely David Lindelof <laughs> It's like, I don't think I should be able to pull off the road. And so I called the police the next day, and I was like, hey, listen, I feel really weird about this. I don't know what the procedure for this <laughs> is. It was a little bit Kafka-esque. Like, I actually called the police, and I said, listen, um, I had an accident last night. I had a, like a collision or whatever the term of art is. I drove off the road, and my car flipped over, and then I, I drove it home. And it seems fine. And they were like, well, you know, were you intoxicated? Were you doing this? Were you doing that? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Call, call the police and tell them about this. Well, no, because what would you do? Like, if you were, if like, you were they in get a you on the phone, they get you on the phone and it's like, are there any crimes you want to admit to? Because we can deal with that. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us you were drunk driving? But it's the same. But, you know, it's the same mentality as your, um, like, driving uh, test person where they were like, um, so, okay, so is this about insurance? And I was like, no, like, my car is pretty screwed up. Okay, so are you like confessing to a crime? It's like, right, right. no, it's just that I flipped my car. The Eagles were still playing, and I drove my car home, and I figured I should call someone. Yeah. You call and your they were mom. like, uh, no, I think you're good. Like, you're all right. Should have called your mom. Yeah. She, you should always call your mom. Yeah. I, I, in my accident, I did hit my head, and that was you know, the head injury thing you're thinking about. You're like, 
they say when you have a head injury, you won't know it. And I had a, I, yeah, right, just sure. Just in a oh, serious right. accident, sure, sure. I got to check, do I have all my limbs? Do I have yeah. all my fingers? Am I bleeding internally? Am I bleeding externally? Are all my bones connected? The people in the ambulance wanted to check me out after that, and they gave me a clean bill of health. I was like, all right, but I <laughs> guess I could go home and fall asleep and never wake up. That happened with Shelly's car with her truck in, like, 1988, and I still feel terrible about it. No, I used to feel so bad about that. But her, because her car was, like, no, because she was, like, an awesome, like, tough woman. Like, you know, whatever. But this wasn't, whatever. like, a classic car. It was symbolic of Ranger. freedom for her. Like, I, I crushed her Mockingjay. Did, did you buy her a new Ford Ranger? No, I think I, I'm sure I handled it poorly. Oh, slunk God. away. <laughs> Stay in touch. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be a stranger. <sighs> it's been it's been swell and all, but I think our time has passed. It's not you. It's me. No, it's really me. 